Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Oh, we up in cabin season, eh? Oh, shit. It's time the summer folk are here. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't come to Dark Score Lake for no reason, do you? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here to uh, investigate the activities of my late wife. What about our many drowned children? <laughs> I guess I'll investigate those too if it comes up. The accents really drift in here. I got. <laughs> let me go. Ah, ah. Right, we're like moving down to Dixie a little bit. <laughs> I heard y'all been round here asking too many questions about <laughs> our many dead children. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh. Yep. Yep. Today we're reading. Water. Reading a book all about... Uh, the Mid-Atlantic accent. I can do that one, too. <laughs> no, I can't believe the, you would ask me such a question, Michael Lutz. The screwball comedy version of this. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've been down in the basement. No, you have not been down in the basement. I've been down in the basement, and I've been hearing someone knocking on my insulation. Now, listen here. Are you familiar with the works of Daphne du Maurier? Now, I've read all the books in the Library of America, and you're not going to tell me, sir, that I have not read those books. And you're going to give me so many awards because I have read those books. Uh, today, we've read Bag of Bones from 1998. Uh, heck, what a what a book. It's really something. Uh, it, oh, you know... On one hand, it's actually really impressive Mm -hmm. because it's so clearly Stephen King being like, y'all got to give me some awards for something, right? (laughs) Yes. Like, you got to give me, I've been writing these, I've been writing for 30 years. You got to give me an award for something. Mm -hmm. And then he like human chat GPTs his way through. Uh, the great american novel yeah <laughs> he's like he's like what okay let's just look at the component pieces what do people who give awards like they like references to great literature check mm-hmm. what do they also like books about writing books check what also do they like stories about racism but mm-hmm. not a kind of story that blames anyone for anything just the notion of racism check yep We've got a winner on our hands, kids. Right. Well, uh, not even just that. Like, what are other classic elements of important novels? Uh, An older man having a tense, (laughs) potentially romantic relationship with a younger woman. Uh, Check, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A hatred of the moneyed elite. (laughs) And also computers. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I we're kind of joking a little bit, but it really does feel that way. Um, it is a deeply cynical book. It feels like to me. Um, also, in the same way, right? Like I that list I just made is actually the list you if you want to talk about Oscar bait films, right? Mm-hmm. So like that that's the thing. Like, what does essentially the award giving middle brow appreciate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that I just talked about, other than no, even the writer thing. Uh, could be attributed to the the movie. Uh, what what was it called? Green Book. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. With Viggo Mortensen and uh-huh. his many hot dogs he ate. Uh huh. Right, like that kind of, I don't know, valorization of a very particular middle brow uh, approach to the universe. Right. Um, mm-hmm. both salt to the earth, but both appeasing to the moneyed classes. Right, like that's a winning formula, bud. And Steve has unlocked it. Yeah, yeah, this book, uh, so it comes out in 1998, I'm just going to read from Wikipedia here, it won the 1999 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel, the 1999 British Fantasy Award for Best Novel, and the 1999 Locus Award for Best Dark Fantasy Horror Novel, Uh, so it uh, did really well in terms of genre awards, you'll notice that I didn't mention any sort of like mainstream awards, right, he wasn't winning the Pulitzer Mm -hmm. for this. Uh, but it does seem, and I think you're absolutely correct, Cameron, that it, it seems like uh, this book is uh, another like culminating move of King wanting to be taken seriously as an author and sort of taking moves to be, who, who is he going to be taken serious by? Uh, and this is a swing toward the literary, uh, some important biographical stuff that's happened recently that uh, uh, hasn't actually come up. Uh, I there, you know, I, I think there is something going on here where King is becoming aware of his place, like whether or not he's winning an awards, he is becoming aware of his place in kind of pul- popular culture and kind of American culture, because uh, 1996 and 1997 is when we see those two rage inspired school shootings that mm-hmm. we talked about uh, more back on the episode on rage. If you want to go back and listen to that. Um, so uh, if there's anything that's maybe going to drive home uh, the influences you may or may not be having in culture i'd I'd say that those are uh some things that might do that uh but 96 uh is also the year that he wins the o henry award uh, Mm -hmm. uh which is a short story award he wins that for the story the man in the black suit which was published in 1994 in uh the new yorker new yorker of course is an upscale uh outlet uh the o henry award is nothing to sneeze at uh and so there is this like push and pull i think biographically where king is seeing the effects he has in the culture regardless of what he's doing and then also like the o the o henry awards a that's an accomplishment that's an achievement and uh i remember actually Harold Bloom, maybe, who uh, has come up here before. You read something from him a couple episodes ago, Cameron. I think Harold Bloom, when that happened, like lost his mind. I'm I I know he wrote uh, another thing about Stephen King and like, uh, you know, the oh look how much culture has been degraded because Stephen King is winning awards now, and I think it was because of uh, that O. Henry Award. So of course, right. So. Uh, like there is a uh, an awareness, I think, on King's part of like where he is and what he's doing. And then also the fact that this book was more literary was part of its marketing push. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's got to be right. Yeah. So the other kind of famous thing that happened uh, just off stage here is that King uh, was he's been publishing with Viking for a good long while now. 
not not in the present day when you're listening to this, but like I'm, you know, narrating the history here. Uh, he's been publishing for B- Viking. Uh, and it is after uh, the previous book that uh, he is up on his contract. And so he kind of goes open season. This is the L.A. Times. Uh uh, before King's next Tingler goes on sale, King must first pick a publisher. After nearly 20 years with Viking, he recently stunned the industry by seeking offers from other houses for what is titled Bag of Bones, setting off a high-stakes bidding war that promises to test the limits of how much publishers are willing to spend in a sluggish period for the book business. Industry sources say King is seeking an advance that exceeds the $15 million to $16 million per book paid under his now-expired contract with Viking, already one of the richest deals around. Moreover, the sources add, King wants an unusually high royalty rate, 26% of gross sales compared with the standard rate of 15%, and will not commit himself beyond Bag of Bones. A little bit later... King also is said to favor the idea of switching to a house with more literary cachet, such as Knopf, Scribner, or Fowler, Strauss, and Guru. All three companies were expected to submit bids in concert with their respective paperback partners. Uh, the, the, the ticklish problem for King is that his sales, impressive as they are, do not approach the Grisham and Clancy levels that he apparently wants to reach in terms of compensation. John Grisham's legal thrillers sell more than two million copies apiece in double-day hardcover. Tom Clancy's technodramas, while selling fewer copies, apparently have earned back the huge advances paid to him so that Penguin Putnam Inc. recently agreed to a new two-book deal that Publishers Weekly valued at $50 million. King has been in the same company as Clancy since an acquisition by Viking's parent firm led to the formation of Penguin Putnam in December. So, any thoughts on that, Cameron? Get that paper, Steve. <laughs> well, I also think it's really interesting, uh, you know, he, he's he's now in the same outfit as Tom Clancy, and Tom Clancy's getting paid more, and so he jumps oh, yeah. ship, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's not even me being like, uh, how dare he? It's just, it's, it's notable, right? Like, uh, we've, we've talked previously about, um, King kind of warping the publish publishing industry around him and that's happened. And now there's kind of like a second generation of authors, uh, kind of genre authors, uh, who are ascendant in a way that he is really like, he settled into his niche, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right. He is Stephen King, but Tom Clancy or, or John Grisham are kind of the new thing. So that is like a, a big deal. Right. When he goes out and he is asking like this is unprecedented. Right. This is a word that comes up in a lot of the press about this, that it is unprecedented. Uh, eventually, what happens uh, is that he gets in with Scribner. Right. Which is actually a, a division of Simon and Schuster. Um, and the deal is described as unusual. It's a profit-sharing deal. So this is the New York Times. The best-selling author Stephen King and Simon & Schuster struck a tentative deal yesterday to publish his novel Bag of Bones in an unconventional arrangement that will give the horror writer a share of nearly 50% of the profits. It's called co-publishing in this article, uh, and the advance is less than $8 million. And this is another quote that I pulled out here. Mary Higgins Clark is Simon and Schuster's only fiction author that approaches King's level. Hmm. I point that out because Mary Higgins Clark is talked about in Bag of Bones. Yes. <laughs> As like untouchable. Yes. 
Uh, all right, Steve. Yep. Yes, Camp. Yep. So that's like the that's all that politicking. So the book comes out. Uh, the reviews all key into Steve trying to be more literary. Almost all of them talk about this in some way. Uh, the positive reviews often talk about this as a a, a more mature novel. Uh, that that uh, King has kind of like grown up. Uh, there are a couple of outright negative reviews that say basically the novel is is a mess. There's actually one from was this was that L.A. Times? I don't remember. Yes, it was Merle Rubin in the L.A. Times um, who had probably the most negative review that I read. Uh, not in quite the Herald. bag of bones, more like a bag of shit, <laughs> sort of. I mean, it would be impossible not to, you know what I mean? If you're reviewing this and you don't like it, more like a bag of trash left on the side of the highway. Well, I know the the really awkward headline that I think I sent you from not this review, but someone else's was like, like Stephen King's scary bag of bones has a few tears in it. God, come on. <laughs> oh, his scary bag of bones. You read something like that and you go, maybe Stephen King is the master of, of the written word. Yeah. Uh, uh, so like the, the, uh, the most negative review that one from Ruben, uh, keys into a lot of stuff that we talked about, that this is a book that is in dialogue with kind of the broader literary scene and literary tradition, um, and that it's doing stuff in that arena. And it basically says that it doesn't line up, that it's, it, it, uh, there's a bit where it says like illusion and irony do not literature make or something like that is, is a quote that Ruben has. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, there are uh, a lot of positive reviews. And then the other thing that comes along with this uh, appears to be uh, kind of one of the biggest like publicity, like uh, uh, interview pushes uh, that I think I've seen King give in the past, however many years that we've been doing hmm. the research, right? There's a lot of, he goes to the UK and it's the first time in 20 or 25 years that he's been in the UK. So there was a lot of like UK reviews or interviews. Hmm. Um, the other thing uh, that was really interesting about this is that uh, this is during kind of this round of interviews, uh, he starts telling the story that is now kind of famous and is going to come up textually in a couple of books. It's written down in on writing. He mm -hmm. starts telling the story here of uh, the kid who he was friends with when he was a child who got hit by a train and he was a witness to it and uh, doesn't have a memory of it. But his mother tells him that it happened. Right. Right. This is interesting, too. Uh, I think we talked about that in what, in The Stand, maybe? Or no, not The Stand, uh, Stand By Me. Yeah, uh, uh, different seasons. Um, ah. Yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's so, the book. So there's so that happens. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that it uh, recontextualizes King a little bit, right? As a, as a, as a something that you drop in an interview, right? That is a thing that recontextualizes the author. It uh, Actually, we have, a, we have great... Uh, language for this these days because of horror film, right? That that elevates it. Like before, Stephen King right. is just this guy writing writing scary stories, but now suddenly, oh, they're scary because of trauma. Well, it's also a um, transformation in the way that like interviews are being done in particular. Like it, it, that's the late night anecdote, right? Like mm -hmm. um, where do your where do your ideas come from? Where do your stories come from? Right? Like actually it is better for Stephen King to have this ghoulish answer to that 
than to do the thing he's always done, which is like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. I go to the grocery store. <laughs> I imagine giant pterodactyls eating my kid. <laughs> right. And that's that's enough, like that's what's so interesting about that story of self-presentation, because he has up until this point been like, I don't know. And he's he's given answers in interviews and he said stuff explicitly in like Dan's Macabre where he resents the idea that something has to have happened to him for him to write these things and for the yeah. like it is clear that something that he got a lot or at least thought that he was getting a lot uh was that when people found out the types of things that he wrote they would be like oh well are you mentally ill in some way right and i do wonder if that's is that the changing landscape of the 1970s horror boom 1970s to the 1980s versus like whatever the hell's happening in the 90s mm-hmm. you know what i mean like is the is the drive towards psychological realism in the bourgeois novel part of why he needs to come up with that, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to like the the inherent defense of of horror as a thing that not just like weirdo murderers with like trauma <laughs> made, which is I think like part of the allure and fun of horror in the seventies, right? Like that was kind of a thing people leaned into, like from the from the mixed up depraved mind of blah blah blah. Uh huh. And so, like, you can't do that in 1995. Right. Um, you, you have to have a different kind of thing. You don't get in the Oprah Book Club, okay, <laughs> by being, like, from the mixed-up, wild-ass mind of Stephen King. There's a car that kills people. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a way that I, that, that I do think he's, like, maybe following trend lines or something. I mean, he's, he's, he's always been very astute at kind of reading the room um, and adapting to expectations. And I think the expectation of someone of his caliber in the 90s is doing that, right? Like, think about the other people in his bracket. I don't know enough about Mary Higgins Clark to, like, talk about that necessarily, but Clancy Grisham Patterson, right? Like, Hmm. psychological realism that comes out of real-world situations right? and gets resolved in that way, right? Like, the 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 thrill of Grisham is it's like ripped from the the headlines. Grisham does his research. He understands the reality of the law in a way that you don't, mm-hmm. and that's why he's cool. Same thing with Patterson, right? Indefinitely uh, with Clancy. That's the whole you know fetish for Tom Clancy is like he gets China. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he understands geopolitics. Now whether that's true or not, so whatever. But uh, I think it's much harder to be like. You know, Grisham and the firm, Uh, you know, Tom Clancy and one of his mini Jack Ryan novels where, you know, one cool guy is helping the world. And, you know, the finger of God coming down and killing people, (laughs) blowing up a (laughs) nuclear weapon and killing Satan at the same time. It's just uh, the the imagination of the blockbuster novel has gone away. And I think part of that, too, is the contraction of the books market has also meant that people like Cormac McCarthy are on, like, the bestseller list. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a way that the collapse of the art appreciator world and other worlds is changing the market. I don't think that's happened yet, necessarily, by, like, the mid-90s. I think that's something that we're going to see, like, post-complete solidification of the Oprah's Book Club. Mm-hmm. Um, where, like, the middle-brow art novel becomes extremely dominant for about a decade in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And he'll play in that space, too. But but I do think that there's, I don't know, uh, uh, changing ecology there that, like, 
psychological realishism needs to to land there. And you know, like I, I, I when I was finishing this book, like a message I sent you, and I was like, you know, this is beloved for white people, right? And like mm-hmm. beloved is for white people also too, right? Let's not not to diminish that novel in any way. I'm not being critical of that novel. I'm being critical of the way that it was uptaken in a certain way as like indicative of an entire universe of meaning. Um, you know, Toni Morrison is one of the greatest writers that the English language has ever produced. There, there's mm-hmm. no question in my mind. There's also a way that the book, simultaneous to that, there's a way that the kind of literary establishment took that book and made it a, uh, and I, I, I mean very specifically, a literary establishment that is often catered to the whims of white readers, right? Took mm-hmm. that, book and made it kind of the uh, the great African-American novel and then began to process its understanding of race through that kind of incredibly talented oblique narrative. And then that gets passed in a, in a game of telephone, right, over the course of a decade to Stephen King, who was writing Bag of Bones and clearly pulling on that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, pulling so hard as much as he can and getting to 5% of a Toni Morrison here, right? Or whatever. But it, but it is so clear that the lit, the, the literary accomplishment of Toni Morrison processed through like bourgeois uh, literature then creates the literary attempt of Stephen King, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so there's part of that going on here too, where, King is trying to reach outside of his zone. He's trying to staple some of the stuff from it that, you know, he's already talked about some of this stuff, right? But clearly trying to process it through, like, acceptable literary tradition, right? What What is it that people want to read? And he's borrowing very heavily from Beloved there, right? Like, the whole time I was reading this book, uh, I was thinking about the, and I've, I've mentioned this line before, right? But um, the, the Sadia Hartman piece from an interview in 2020 where she says, you know, a thing to be aware of and to think through is, you know, where do we see uh, black suffering for white education? Mm -hmm. And uh, that is not what is happening in Beloved. That is what is happening in Bag of Bones. And they are related, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the king is grabbing those pieces. So, so I think, like, I say all that to say there's a weird kind of thing that's happening in two directions to get to, like, the literary maneuver here. One is how do I stay, you know, from the perspective of King, right? How do I stay abreast of Grisham Patterson, uh, all these other contemporaries that I have who are doing something quite different than I am. And also how do I grab onto this literary history that I so clearly want to signal that I'm a part of notably, by the way, we get like a billion versions of that. We get all of these references. We do not get actually a reference to Toni Morrison. Yeah, he's not brave enough to do that part, right? Mm-hmm. To admit the the borrowing or the the reference. Yeah, yeah. No, there's. Uh, I mean, this is a book that is in dialogue with a lot of things, uh, mm. and some of that is explicit, some of it is implicit, but it is also like this is you know the first in at at the moment only Stephen King novel were within the first what thirty pages or something. Uh, the protagonist is talking about Saul Bellow. <laughs> Yeah, not right. even uh, you know Tad <laughs> in uh, the Dark Calf. Right? wasn't Wasn't that Tad? Tad, Tad. Bo- Beaumont. Yeah, it was Thad Beaumont. Thad Beaumont. Mm-hmm. The uh, literary. Not even author. he would uh, reference Saul Bellow. Right. 
so uh, another we can get into like how this impacts the actual material of the novel uh, after one last kind of historical note that I thought was interesting with this book. Uh, rumors start flying that Steve is going to retire. Huh. Some of that comes from this book itself, where in the last chapter, the <laughs> protagonist, who is a writer, says that he's not going to write fiction anymore. And yeah. people read that and they're like, is that Stephen King saying he's retiring? I mean, that is interesting. Because it kind of run in, runs into the... Uh the sabbatical thing too from mm -hmm. a decade previous right like mm -hmm. and that you know and then he like kind of did the sabbatical and then wrote books about writers mm -hmm. i don't know what to do with that that's interesting the other place, i was looking oh, oh go ahead i was gonna go say ahead. the other place it comes from is uh this interview that he does with um i don't know how to say her last name it's uh elizabeth grice or grice maybe g-r-i-c-e uh and he says in this interview a writer has only a finite number of stories to write, he told me. I think I'm very near the end of my uh, end of publishing my work. You reach a stage where you've mapped the rooms and reached the walls and it's time to be done. I don't want to descend into self-parody. I've written most of the things people are going to appreciate. After this, it might be just the blabberings of a tiresome old uncle. Stephen King, at this point, We've done 40-something episodes. Forty. This is our 42nd episode. Mm -hmm. He has rewritten the same idea at least 20 times. You know, like, in terms of, like, books we have read and been like, oh, this is a another swing at previous idea that we've seen. Mm -hmm. How is he only getting to this realization in 1997 or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. And it's weird because... He does have to come out after this and say that he's not retiring, even though, like, what I just read does sound awful an awful lot like someone who is, he he's, makes it clear that he's not going to stop writing, but he's going to stop publishing. Huh. So there does seem to be some sort of disenchantment going on there, but then he has to come back out and say, no, 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 I'm not retiring. It's such a weird thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe he just gets down on himself. That's that's actually kind of my thought is maybe he just like, you know, has his highs and lows. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a very human thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I think he's always prone to overstatement in a good way. I uh -huh. think that's like a, a fun part of Stephen King and like what makes him a cool guy. And so maybe he's like, I don't know, I'm just bummed out. Maybe I'll never publish a book again. Yeah. These interviews also are notable, I think, because he's talking a bit more about uh, and we get this in, in the novel as well. Right. He's talking a bit more about. um how weird it is to be famous, basically. Uh, we get some more talk about, you know, uh, uh, Mark David Chapman, for instance, and his, like, fear that he met him at one point or that uh, Chapman was in some way going to be fixated on him before he switched to John Lennon. Uh, right. but we also get this uh, interesting uh, story that someone broke into their house a few years back and uh, confronted Tabitha and said that they had a bomb and they were going to blow up the house. It turned out that this was like a mentally ill man and he had uh, a sort of like false bomb made out of, I think, like, you know, uh, uh, erasers and rubber bands and pencils or something like he'd, he had put it put it underneath a coat or a shirt to make it look like he had been strapped with explosives. Uh, but the upshot of that or sort of the outcome right 
uh, is that it is mentioned that the kings are keeping two houses. One is like a front house, like the business house, and then one is the one where they actually live. And and this is post move to Florida, right? Or Uh, he's like in the process of doing that? He has to, I think they've spent their like first winter in Florida definitely because this is also the first book where we get our, our hints of Florida Steve to come. The, the the Florida Steve of Christmas past, the Florida Steve of, of Christmas present, the uh-huh. Florida Steve of Christmas future. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, uh, it is interesting that like there's the the vacation the 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 writer with two homes. We've seen that a few times now. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time the home itself has been the problem, right? Right. That's that's notable. Because it's got like an evil past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here, Steve. But yeah, anyway, I think all of those things we talked about, I think they're all in the mix and important. I was looking here, uh, by the way, a minute ago when you were talking about awards. I was like, has Stephen King won the Library of Congress award? Like the the one for American fiction? Because I knew that Grisham had won it. And uh, here's the award. Grisham wins in 2009. Okay. Mm-hmm. Morrison wins in 2011. Philip Roth wins in 2012. Don DeLillo wins in 2013. Dr. O in 2014. Uh, Erdrich, 2015. Marilyn Robinson, 2016. Dennis Johnson in 2017. Wow. And then several other people. No King. Hmm. Well, do we want to talk about this book? Uh, Yeah, I guess. I guess we probably should, having covered all of that. Uh, which brings us to... The five-sentence summary. So the five-sentence summary is the part of the show where uh, one of us, this time it's Cameron, uh, summarizes the book that we just read in five sentences, no more, no less. This is a thing that we are coming up with as we are saying it. We are not reading a Wikipedia summary or someone else's summary. We're just trying to remember everything that happened and how to condense it into only five sentences. Since one, there is a man who is a writer who lives in Maine and his wife is dead. Period. He can't write no more good. Comma. So he go to cabin near Allen Wake Lake. Period. He falls in love with a woman a third his age, and she's got a kid, and he has to fight Bill Gates in order to make her still have the kid, period. There's ghosts and shit there, and he's got to figure that all out and does some real uh, 1980s novel it stuff in order to learn about the history of the place, period. Boy, howdy, does he thread the needle and get everything resolved and also realize that the whole town is cursed to kill a child because way back in history, there was a racial child murder that happened and now a ghost is getting revenge on everybody. I don't know. Period. Bonus sentence. White guy saves everybody in the whole wide world, period. That's it. That's what happens in Bag of Bones. Yep. 
Basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is kind of two novels that happen simultaneously. One is this uh, kind of dramatic thriller about child custody. Uh, and then the other novel that is happening is this gothic mystery about uh, uncovering a historical hate crime. More yeah, this like Henry James ass like writer's writerly story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and somehow uh, I like this is one of my thoughts after I finished this is that despite I think Bag of Bones not being as famous as as your Cujo's and your It's and your Christine's and whatnot, even your pet cemeteries, uh, Bag of Bones might be the most influential King book of the 90s. Because there are so many elements of this story that percolate into other media that is either recognized as or uh, avows itself as being King influenced, right? There are actually yeah. elements here of Stranger Things, which is presents itself as hearkening back to the 80s, but actually and does like there's some elements in there that are very mm. much like the 70s, 80s King stories. But um the the communication device uh, in that first season and where with the the Christmas lights or whatever, like the Christmas light Ouija board uh, that is anticipated here by uh, magnetic letters on a fridge. Uh, but then also, as you mentioned in your summary, like Alan Wake comes out of this and uh, uh, Mike Flanagan's way of uh, riffing on King is very much present in this, particularly late later in the novel. Some of the weird metaphysical stuff from the Dark Tower starts seeping into this story. Uh, and the uh, way that that happens and sort of the form that it takes is something that I recognize a lot in Mike Flanagan's work, where uh, he'll start with a horror story that by the end is actually kind of a weird fantasy story. Yeah, I'm I am astonished about how much of Alan Wake is just here. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and I like I I've been like dismissive of this book a little bit so far. I am um I don't know, not thrilled about like I don't think Stephen King sinks the shot, you know what I mean? But I think the first two thirds of this book are really, really good. And I think that this is um it probably it's like needful things in that it has taken elements from like every book he's written since nineteen ninety. And stuffed it all together in a really compelling way. I don't know. If, I don't think that needful things like actually makes out go all the way through, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's one of the summative novels. Christine, we talked about that. You know, is is one of the summative novels too. This one is like, here's everything I've been doing for the past six, seven years. It's all here. I hope you enjoy it. Like, like there's a lot of insomnia in here. Um, and there is a lot of uh, Dolores Claiborne in a really mm -hmm. good way. I think. Um, and then the Green Mile, you know, like the exact same maneuver of like, who knows what about this history and then reinterpreting an event that everyone thinks they understood. Right. There's the thing in here about um, he thinks his wife before she died was seeing another man mm -hmm. and it just it's bothered. You know, he can't do it. And he eventually works his way around to realizing, oh, she was there with her brother. And he was like helping her do a thing she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. and it's it's the same maneuver as as the Green Mile, right? Of like we, given the facts on the ground, we thought one thing happened, but if you if you let Detective 
um, you know, what do you call it? Like prison guard, figure it out. (laughs) Detective Tom Hanks, he'll be able to tell you, "Uh uh-uh, it's another thing that happened, given all the information. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's Steve, it's him taking a bunch of pieces that he's already kind of figured out how to make go and then slamming them all together. I think it really, really works. I don't think the last third works very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's mostly bad, but first two thirds, I was like, I'm in it. I'm yeah. in, you know, checking out this, uh, haunted lake. I think some of the, uh, descriptions of haunting here, mm-hmm. some of the best he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Certainly since the shining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, the thing about this novel that feels kind of fresh for King is that it is very much in a um, I, there are parts of this that almost feel just like you're reading a genuine mystery novel. Oh, yeah. Right. In a way that King has never really done before. Um, And the I agree with you that it's there's a lot of compelling stuff here. I don't think he sinks the shot and like the but the first two thirds of this book are really interesting because of uh, just the there is a an attempt or a willingness to like move at things from the side here like or to put this a different way like there is a way that King is maybe um, willing to let the two different novels that I mentioned right this kind of like custody drama and then like the gothic haunting mystery he is willing to let those things just kind of idle along beside each other before the streams start crossing that I think is really interesting and makes the novel feel very very different from uh, everything that we've read from him I think up to this point mm-hmm. um, hey uh, can I uh, can I tell you a thing sure. about the other day uh yeah the other day the other day mm-hmm. i was in a bookstore in a different town and i was looking at their big case and i was having a flashback to when we went to a bookstore in a different town mm-hmm. and we saw a big case of rare books and we made some uh you know we i don't think we purchased very many rare maybe you did maybe you purchased a rare book um uh-huh. but i was just thinking about it right uh-huh. and i was looking in there and what do you know down at the very bottom there was a uh, Richard Stark book. Oh, wow. Which are fairly rare in hardcover, uh-huh. which I think is like real rare. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, maybe a couple hundred bucks, right? Because I want to read them. They're hard to get, hand, hard to get their, your hands on, literally. Mm-hmm. Let me check it out. And I say, I say to the uh, cashier, hey, can you can you tell me how much this book is? And uh, she comes over and she tries to use the keys and they don't work. And then she goes and gets another set of keys and they don't work. And then she goes and gets her like shift manager who gets some other keys and they eventually work. So like we're we're eight minutes in uh-huh. to I need to know how much this book costs. They pull it out and I don't um, maybe it is. You know, I don't have the bibliography in front of me, so I can't tell you which one it is. Okay. Is that is that relevant? Is that really important to I it's not relevant, but okay. I you know, I, I wanted to give you more information. Uh-huh. They uh I, I they just I was wondering me. if like the end of this and the book was called Michael's Going to Get Murdered. The Lutz Killings. <laughs> uh no. Do you want to take a guess at how much this hardcover uh, 
you know, Donald Westlake, a.k.a. Richard Stark novel was. I didn't purchase it, so that should give you some information. Yeah. Um, uh, let's go with 2K. It was not 2K. Mm. That's the basketball game. I understand yeah. how you're oh, confused. Yeah, okay, okay. Mm. So is 2K uh, too high? That's too high. Too That's high. too high. Okay. Um, then 1K? 500 hundos okay i thought i was i thought i was going a little high but uh yeah but that's a lot of money for a book that's still a lot of money for a book that's still more money than i've ever spent on a book yeah no, i've not yeah i've never spent 500 dollars on a book yeah even remotely but uh anyway that's just uh that's the kind of anecdote that people are looking for here on just king things <laughs> i went to a bookstore and saw a book and i did not buy it you're welcome listener <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I bet that in the future, someone will find a first edition hardcover of Bag of Bones that may be $500. I don't know. I feel I like, know. I wonder, you know, I wonder how much that is. Let's, I'm going to look it up while you're talking. I bet it's not that. I think the problem, like once we get into the 90s, is that these books are being printed in such numbers. That I, right. I, I don't know. But yeah, yeah, like, look it up. Let's see how much first edition hardcover Bag of Bones is going for. Uh, but we can also talk about the novel itself, namely, uh, it's written in the first person. The protagonist is this guy named Mike Noonan, and he basically sucks, uh, in ways that are intentional and then also some ways where it's maybe questionable how intentional that sucking is, or to put this in a different way, mm -hmm. lots of Mike the Noonan's intentional sucking. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the interviews around and reviews of this book also orbit around the fact that Stephen King is writing about a writer again. Yeah. Uh, and he's aware of that because almost every single writer who has been a major character in a previous novel is mentioned in this one. I think the one uh, big glaring exception is Mort Rainey from Secret Window, Secret Garden. Oh, my God. I yeah. can't believe you can pull Mort Rainey like that. <laughs> More rainy. Oh I my always, god! I always remember it because it's such a weird name. Like someone, like I'm sorry to any listeners named Mort, but like having yeah, the name thing. Mort is like no one's ever gonna forget your name because everyone remembers mm. the guy named Mort. Like, yeah, what what are you? A cartoon skull? Yes, exactly. Like it's just <laughs> it's the it's the thing. <laughs> All right, I've looked it up. Bag of Bones, a novel. Uh, this this is on uh, Abe Books. Mm hmm. Now, this is the most expensive one. Sixteen hundred bucks. Actually, sixteen ninety five. So seventeen hundred dollars. That's not, you know, that's not wow. unthinkable. amount. Of money. I would not pay that amount of money, but it's the most expensive one. It is certified by the PSA organization. OK, but here's the deal. It's signed to Michael. Oh, yeah. Well, that's weird. That's for you. Uh huh. So there you go. OK. But you can go kind of down the list. You can get one. It looks like for about a thousand dollars. Okay. Wow. Well, that's more than that. Uh, no Stark novel, I guess. Huh. Mm -hmm. So much for my hypothesis that no one gives a shit about uh, first edition books from 1998. I mean, these are ones that are available. They're not ones that have been sold. So okay. you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Um, maybe they're just put up for show. I just think it's also like Stephen King stuff. A lot of these are also the UK edition. I wonder uh, if that's more rare. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
Anyway, what do you think of Mike Noonan? I think he's a very boring man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I am very tired. And this is like a this is a bummer of a thing to say halfway through the show. By the way, we have not mentioned that last episode we were so like we're fifty percent of the way through. Yay, 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 yay. Uh-huh. Lo and behold, we find out that Stephen King announces a new goddamn book. Mm-hmm. In between the recording of that episode and this one. So now we're not we're now we're back to what? Like forty eight point yeah. five or something? Yeah, forty eight point something percent. So yeah, he kicked us he, like I mean, and I talked about this. I said you he's did. listening you said and he's it. gonna do this. <laughs> we know I, he listens to some of these major shows. He's listening to us? Yeah. Steve? <laughs> tell me if my accent's any good. <laughs> Give me feedback, Steve. Uncle Steve, but no, yeah. I am um I'm fucking tired of reading about this guy. Like a dude over 40 who like sometimes he gets a fucking boner. <laughs> That's like Steve's dude now. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like I I can still do it. I can still get a boner. I've got wisdom, but you know, I'm still the old sometimes I I'm as unwise as I always was. I'm tired of it, man. So wait, give are, me are, a fucking magical kid again who who can project mind powers and stuff. So how long are you tracing this character type back? Not too far. Yeah, I mean, this is like the big emergence, right? Yeah, I'm already tired of it. But no, I mean, really, like the Tad Beaumont, the uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden guy. Those are both the emergence of this dude, right? Uh huh. Right. Well, and, I and also- then kind of uh, Alan Pangborn a little bit too. A little bit Alan Pangborn, and I think kind of like the narrative voice of Wizarding Glass. That's so much about yes, like I'm yeah, an old yeah. man now. Kind, of, it's like, it doesn't even say that right, but there is there is something there about that book and its structure and about like its fixation mm. on lost adolescence. That yeah, the look back, like you know the the uh, time. There was a time before the world moved on mm-hmm. when my thirty something wife was still alive. You know, there's that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, which is literally what's going on here. And I, I'm already, I'm already tired of it here. Mm -hmm. And we're going to read roughly 35 more books about this guy. (laughs) So I, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some high points and low points, but I, I'm, I'm, um, Steve has unfortunately like, you know, he's printed the the legend and he's bought the legend, right? Like he has realized, and I guess, uh, also maybe the thing I'm not saying here, that's part of it is like, this is the green mile. Like mm. up and down. Right? Yes, it is. Like, yeah. Um, and so, like, I think I'm just tired of the like Stephen King is the master of nostalgia, like underwritten narrative. You know, that that's kind of subtending the much bigger, you know, schlockmeister horrormeister Steve. You mm-hmm. know, um, and I've not been a fan of that since the beginning of the show. And I, I just, I, any time that it's like thinking back to the good old times. You know, or like the older man who's like still got a little bit of it in him. And the yeah. way that that is often communicated is that he can get a boner. Yeah. That's just not interesting to me. It's I don't find it particularly offensive. Mm-hmm. It's just like not interesting. Now, let me flip side that. I do like that this book is a place where Stephen King is like, hey. All that old school nostalgia shit might be poison. Mm hmm. Like, yearning for the good old days might be bad. Yeah. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. 
do I like the way that's done in this book? No. Do I like the impulse? Yes. Yeah. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But I, overall, I'm sorry, I've gone off on tangent. He's like barely a character. He's just an older guy. And by older guy, I mean a guy older than 40. Yeah, he's, he's I think, specifically 41 or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because the so the uh, way that this breaks down is that uh, he is he is the narrator. He is like writing this down for us. Uh, he describes how he has been a sort of successful, like mid list author. So there's this very funny game that the entire novel is playing where it is all clearly built out of Stephen King's life and experiences, but he is like downgrading them or trying to downgrade them to a an author who is successful, but not as successful, like a guy who I think never cracks the top 10 bestsellers. He's only ever in the top 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he writes novels that are about uh, I mean, he's he's explicitly likened to Mary Higgins Clark who writes these thrillers about young women, uh, you know, like the typical Mary Higgins Clark plot is like a young woman uh, meets a man. Uh, there is something going on with him. She gets pulled into some sort of subterfuge, uh, vaguely like criminal enterprisey, uh, like the sort of like the, the uh, like women directed thrillers, right. Is kind of mm-hmm. like what, yeah. what Clark writes. Um, and so uh, Mike, Newman, by the way, sorry, I scrolled down. Yeah. You can get a first edition, first printing a bag of bones for $75. There we go. There you go. (laughs) I was just looking at the top end anyway. But yeah, Mary Higgins Clark is kind of indicative of part of that field. Yeah. Uh, So Mike Noonan, uh, he says, like, I I write basically it's (laughs) the the thing that is quoted from a review for him that he and his wife are constantly quoting at each other is that uh, he is Mary Higgins Clark with a prick. Uh. That, I believe that's how that's put. Uh, anyway, his wife dies suddenly, mysteriously, and this is very hard for him. Uh, I don't mean that to, to belittle like the morning, but I it's the kickoff event of the novel. And the first maybe eighth is just him talking about their relationship uh, and the circumstances under which she died. Uh, and the thing that really bothers him. So she she drops dead in a parking lot. Um, there's this really weird thing that happens where he like reconstructs the whole event for us because the moment at which she dies, there is also a car accident. And you would think based on the way that he does like almost like the um, true crime style, like this car was coming down this road next to this grocery store in Derry, by the way, they live in Derry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, coming down in this direction and this other car was coming in this way and here are the people who were driving this one and this one. Like, he goes through the whole thing. Uh, meanwhile, over in the parking lot, his wife is coming out of, I think, like the Rite Aid, right? The pharmacy or something. Um, the car accident happens and it's only after, like, as people are, like, trying to uh, work through the aftermath of the car accident that someone realizes that this other woman has collapsed, um, and you would think that by the end of the novel, you would find out more about uh, exactly why we got all of that description of the car accident and maybe like why the car accident happened at the moment that uh, his wife died. You do find out why his wife died, sort of. But the car accident just seems to happen. I don't know about that. Anyway, mm-hmm. do you think it was a ghost? I mean, well, so like the ghost killed her, I think, is like what we're to understand. But then I don't know why that car accident happens. Well, how did the ghost kill her? 
Uh, mm, eh? Right. <laughs> I mean, that he seems pretty resolute at the end. He's like, uh, that ghost killed my wife. Right. But I, c- I couldn't really figure out how. <laughs> like, if ghosts can go around, like, making people... She has, like, a stroke, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a... Her cause of death is a stroke. If if ghosts can go around giving people strokes, it's, we're donezo, right? right? We're we're over, right? Well, and it's further complicated by the fact that so like I, I'm you know sorry not to jump too far ahead, but it turns out um what's her name the wife um Joe Joe yes Joe so, Johanna yeah Johanna so it turns out Joe knows she she knew all about the ghost and all that shit way before that's Mike. right listeners I know the name of a character <laughs> or two there we go I'm not just some asshole ascending to your pride of place. That's right. Uh, so yeah, Joe uh, uh, knew about the ghost. She knew about everything. Like that's actually possibly one of the funniest things about this novel is that uh, Mike Noonan spends the whole novel trying to figure out shit that his wife already knew and was keeping from him uh, for reasons we'll get to. But she had like already done all of this detective work that he's about to to set out on, and in some ways, like has made easier for him. Um, but uh. Uh, so we learn that by the time she dies, she has done something that ostensibly has like quelled the ghosts, but then it turns out that's not the case because then she ends up maybe dying anyway and maybe the ghost did it. Maybe we're supposed to doubt Mike because I'll talk more about sort of Mike's weird stuff. Anyway, uh, the thing that really troubles Mike at the beginning is that she, uh, had in her purse or in her bag that she had come out of the pharmacy with a pregnancy test and they had been trying to get pregnant for a while. And it seemed like it just wasn't going to happen. Like they'd been having issues with um, conceiving children. And so it's really like, obviously he has like the, the, the sad specifically because of him, right? Yes. He's got, Um, he's got the Hank Hill going on. Yeah. So, uh, narrow, narrow urethra. (laughs) That's ex- small, it's explicitly given. Butt. It's explicitly given in the text. He's like, I have a narrow urethra, uh, uh, just like King of the Hill, which is airing on Fox now. Can I pitch something to you? Sure. Bag of bones, but instead of the little girl child, whose name I cannot remember. Kyra. Kia. Kaya. Instead of her. Bobby Hill. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Like that scene where he first meets the kid. If it, if that was like Bobby Hill, like marching yes. down the road to the lake. Yes, I can. <laughs> oh God, better book. Um, more people should just write Bobby Hill in your book. <laughs> oh, people but are always putting car cat and shit in books. Put yeah. Bobby Hill in yeah. there. We need Bobby Hill palette swaps. Uh, so yeah, so uh, Joe's dead. Um, she may have been pregnant. Uh, and so that's like very tragic for, like, Mm -hmm. obviously it's tragic, right? She died suddenly and sort of mysteriously. And then also she apparently might have been pregnant, uh, that, which was a Mm -hmm. thing that they had tried for, for a long time. So Mike, uh, after this descends into a long depression and writer's block, uh, and we get a whole, like, there's no ghosts for a long, long time, uh, after like sort of her death, then we just get a long discussion of kind of the ins and outs of publishing, what it's like to have uh, kind of writing on a schedule, right? This idea of like writing a book every year and like publishing it and like what season do you publish it? 
who are you up against? Like, why do you publish during the time of year that you do? And, oh, this is, I think, maybe the first time we get, uh, in text at least, discussion of trunk novels, which we've an idea that we've referred to multiple times on this show, but I think is first showing up here, uh, which is uh, going to show up again more in the future. The idea that uh, authors will have like a set of manuscripts that are completed, but they haven't put forth for publication uh, precisely because they are holding them in reserve to like put them in on to, to fulfill a contract or like, you know, something isn't coming together right now here, publish this one instead, or as a stopgap as uh, they're working on something that's longer term. Mm. A so, chunk of the first Bachman books were that, right? Yes, right. They were sort of the, the manuscripts lying around that he hadn't published, but he decided he wanted to publish anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Think about like Rage, for example, right, mm-hmm. which had been written while he was in college. Right. Uh, so Mike ends up working through all of his trunk novels, or he's like coming up on the last one, and he's keeping this a secret from everyone. We get a lot of descriptions of like the things that he does to try to fill his time, like going to the gym, meeting a hot woman his age, but then not really going anywhere with her because question mark, right? He's got some sort of emotional blockage. He goes to Florida for a long time. This is what we said at the beginning about Florida, Steve. We get a lot of descriptions about what it's like to hang out in Florida and pretend you're in a Jimmy Buffett song. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then eventually he decides he's going to go up to, well, he also has like some nightmares, right? He has nightmares about his wife. Uh, That's actually, I think, pretty effective. His like first dream he has where um, he like, you don't know that it's a dream at first, but he's like, he's Mm -hmm. laying on the bed and he like looks underneath it and he sees his wife lying underneath the bed. I think that's really cool. Oh, hell yeah. That's scary. I, the, the, there is a moment where, like all the dreams, the dreams slash nightmares, they're all really good mm-hmm. up until like the one third mark of the book where I think he's at Sarah laughs at that point mm-hmm. and he's getting jerked off by a ghost. Yeah. And that's the one that made me go. I don't know, man. I don't know, Steve. Did we we were we were like up until that point, the whole book, I was like, we're hitting on all cylinders like mm-hmm. this might be like a top five. Mm hmm. And look, I got to tell all the aspiring writers out there, you know, I'm I'm not a novelist. That's not it's not my talent. Um, you know, I, I'm just a lowly critic. You know, I'm a teacher. Uh huh. Um, you know, uh, those who can't teach. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. So you know, you got to take this with a grain of salt. But um, I just generally think that having a scene where your protagonist gets jerked off by a ghost, it just mostly doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's questionable. But I mean, think about the literary greats. Grisham. Never. Not even one time has anyone been jerked off by a ghost in a John Grisham novel. Here's the thing, though, is that that might happen in like a John Updike or a Philip Roth novel. That's why I said think about the greats. I, <laughs> I would never suggest thinking about the greats and then looking at those people. <laughs> but I don't know. I think Steve might. I just, you know. Uh-huh. But yeah, that's a you know. You, there's a little bit of a uh, you know you know the famous villain Two Face. Uh huh. He's got that coin with two heads on it. Uh huh. And then a ghost jerks him off. That that's right. <laughs> famous famous cut scene from The Dark Knight. <laughs> Chris Nolan was out there. <laughs> 
but yeah. Aaron Eckhart is like, whoa, this is some sort of ghost. This is why he's not in so many movies anymore. <laughs> he it was part so of his sad. faith. Yeah. Yeah. He just didn't. He thought that was a bridge too far. Uh-huh. But that's all to say, right? You know, make making it funny here. But it literally, like Steve's inability to like turn that shit off, right? To mm-hmm. like to to not go for the wildest thing. I think it actively hurts the novel because I think ten percent of restraint. Let me say another thing about this, by the way. This book is five hundred and some odd pages. How much? Let yeah, I don't know. I have a so fun fact. Uh, I somehow acquired a large print edition. <laughs> so mine is literally 900 pages long. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine's a tight 540. Or okay. Uh, I don't think it's the first book I've said about this in a long time. It's not over long. It's yeah. like fine. Yeah. I think it mostly earns its count. I wasn't mad about it. Like. It's a slow accrual in a building, like you were saying earlier. It's a kind of a fairly traditional haunted house ghost story, you know, in places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in other places, it's a thriller. And I think those kick off of one another really well. I like the kind of small town conversation stuff that happens here that's common for Steve. I think it's really well written. I don't like form wise. Like, I really just do think that like 10% more restraint in the Steve stuff. You know, mm-hmm. in the in the the eighties Steve impulse, it this this book would be a great book. I think it's just a good book currently. I think this book's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this. I think some of the stuff that happens in the back third is just like so is a step too far for no gain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially having read things recently, you know, I was reading. Uh, of course, we read. You know, a couple months ago. Uh, be mean to me. Uh-huh, yes. Rumford's book, but I also just started reading uh, or p- paging through. I won't say reading, but I like read the first 10 pages just to get a sense of it, of uh, Allison's new book, brain worms, mm-hmm. um, which based on 10 pages, I recommend, Oh, okay. you know, in yeah. un- unseen for finishing the book, first 10 pages. I was like, can't wait to finish bag of bones. So I can read this book. But, you know, I just think about the, uh, you know, contemporary people working um, in the extreme space. Mm-hmm. And it makes the Steve stuff like not as good. Yeah. Because I think the contemporary extreme is, is quite better. Anyway, I'm getting off track. I want to go back to my initial point. Uh-huh. You don't have to have a dream ghost jerk you off. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's more going on there that, I mean, it's not necessarily redeeming of it. But it's like what Cameron is not telling you by just saying like there's a scene where a ghost jerks him off. Uh, is yeah. that, that not is, me, by the way, not when, when you say he, that is not referring to me. That yeah. Okay. To, when, when Cameron says a, a ghost jerks Mike off there you uh, go. and that Mike is not me, I'm never a Mike. So <laughs> that's uh, right. Right. Uh, that, that is also a weirdly <laughs> critical. Always a Michael, yeah. never Mike and never jerked off by a ghost. <laughs> that's the that's, Michael Lutz promise. <laughs> Can we get that on a shirt? Can we make I that do shirt? wonder, do you think we could get away with how many people, let us know, tweet at us, leave a Patreon comment. Uh, if we make a shirt that says, I will never be jerked off by a ghost. Oh, I was thinking like doing the whole thing, like do it in the style of those like face uh, Facebook, like Procgen shirts or whatever, where it's like always right. a Michael, never a Mike, <laughs> never jerked off by a ghost. Like just tell, a wall yes, of text. Right. Uh, father, warrior, <laughs> dragon slayer, never back down. Family matters. Not the TV show. 
like one of those, right? Yes. Uh, let us know about both of those. Would you buy either of those shirts? I think both are funny. But I just don't know if the ROI is on it. I know, you know? I know. I, I It's a funny bit, but the idea of a bunch of people who do not have anything like the name Michael wearing shirts that say, always a Michael, never a Mike. Yeah. So tell us, about. would you buy the specific Michael-oriented version? Would you buy the more generic one? I've never been jerked off by ghosts. Or no, you know, any of those options are, are, are perfectly fine. We're just doing a little bit of market research. Okay, yeah. finally getting back to it. What I'm not saying about the that scene is... It's uh, a weirdly important scene in terms of, like, where the plot pivots. <laughs> like... Yeah. Like, thematically... Not, yeah, it's not just a stray scene. Yeah. Yeah, like, a lot of stuff gets, um like, revealed and tied together there. Not revealed, but, like... That's a scene that does a lot of work to, like, take the disparate uh, threads of the plot and be like, hey, by the way, these are all going to be connected in some way. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, how that all happens is that the Mike starts having these nightmares. There's the one really cool one we mentioned about uh, uh, seeing his wife under the bed. Uh, but then he also has this recurring dream where he is standing outside their lake house. They have a they live in Derry, but up in the lakes region in Castle County, uh, they have a lake house called Sarah Laughs. And he is having recurring dreams where he is standing outside of that house. And he in, in the way that you often do in dreams, right? Uh, this weird sense of like something bad is going to happen or something is watching me. And eventually like the dream changes slightly each time. Eventually there's like this thing that comes running out of the house and is like screaming at him. Uh, and it's pretty freaky. So he, as he's like basically sort of unraveling in terms of, he's feeling very panicked about not being able to write and whatnot. He decides to go back to the lake house to see if that if like sort of a change of scenery is going to be the thing that uh, like gets him to write again and also maybe makes him feel closer to his wife, who, again, he he's he's sort of. You know, he's sad that she's gone, but he also is uh, sad and afraid that she hadn't told him that she thought she might be pregnant. Right. Like, he, yeah. Uh, like he obviously there there are ways in which uh she just might not have told him yet but like the fact that she had not even mentioned it to him is is troubling to him in a way that uh locks into something you've already mentioned Cameron that he eventually starts thinking oh was she cheating on me yeah it's great i mean i think the whole setup here uh even though we are back to dead wives you know the stephen king perennial fave mhm uh the dead wife even though we're back there and it's a little like, all right, we've been down this road. Uh, less interest in that. Conceptually, everything here is great, right? Like my my wife was leading a secret life and now I got to go to the small town where she was getting up to wherever she was getting up to and figure out what's up. That's perfectly cool. Little mystery story, mm -hmm. little thriller, add a ghost in there. That's all great to me. I also like the naming of all this stuff, right? So. Uh, it takes place in a town. You'll need to explain this because I don't actually okay. understand it, right? But like, let, let me run all the names out here. It takes place in the TR. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all around Dark Score Lake. Mm -hmm. This is fake, right? This is a Stephen King yes. invention? Okay. Uh -huh. I assume so, but you never want to know. Um, it uh, And it takes place in the cabin, the haunted cabin. Sarah laughs. Mm -hmm. 
which is also cool as hell. Yeah. Um, are there any other cool names here of stuff? I mean, I think, I think the, the the villain name Devor is pretty good. Yeah. Right. Just, uh, you mean Professor X? <laughs> yes, he's also you, Professor X. That's so you, weird. You mean the combination of Professor X and uh, the villain from Blue Velvet? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, Frank. <laughs> yeah, Frank. Yeah. Like, what a what a combo. <laughs> it's really something. What but if yeah. what if Frank and Professor X were the same person and they were also Bill Gates and <laughs> uh, they were also racist? I mean, we don't know about yeah. It's it's any of those other guys. Yeah, I guess. I, guess I don't know so. what Professor X's racial opinions are. Yeah, true. I know he's a huge jerk. <laughs> Kitty Pride established that in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, but very cool names all the yeah. way uh, up and down. Uh, but yeah, it takes place in the TR. Uh huh. What the hell is that? Uh, TR ninety specifically. So it this is it's taking place in this is a real thing. Uh, Western Maine has like a bunch of lakes. It's like right over the uh border from New Hampshire. Um, you go up there and go on vacations and whatnot. So this is like their vacation home on Dark Score Lake. By the way, not to spoil a later segment, but we've been here before. This is the same lake oh, really? that uh Jesse and her family vacation on in Gerald's game. Oh, I knew there was something familiar about it. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you. I thought maybe it was just because I was conflating it with Cauldron Lake from Alan Wake. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was just <laughs> like, I, I think. But yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's in Castle County, meaning that like Castle Rock is the closest actual town. Uh, so the TR is basically like <clears throat> the rural area outside of Castle Rock mm-hmm. uh, that is unincorporated essentially right so the tr there means town road they're like on town road mm-hmm. 90 uh, and they just call it the tr does Got that it. answer your question it does but it's like kind of a community uh-huh you know it's an unincorporated we we had a couple of these where i grew up right mm-hmm. which are like unincorporated kind of townships they got like a little pseudo town hall yeah little community center uh-huh uh liquor store that kind of deal. Yeah, maybe maybe a bank or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bait um, shop. Mm-hmm. Bait shop slash gas station. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. So that's kind of what the, the TR is. Uh, and then Sarah laughs, uh, which is like a cool name for a house. Although I do feel like there is something uh, going on with the way that the house gets contextualized that is really confusing because there's a bit where. Uh, he goes into like so Joe uh, had like an art studio that they had built behind the house. And he goes in there at one point and he talks about seeing like the head of Sarah laughs built out of popsicle sticks. And this is very confusing because at this point, all we know is that Sarah laughs is the name of the house. Uh, and mm-hmm. what it turns out, Sarah laughs is actually named after someone. And so this is to back up. There is a way that this novel could have been written that would have been a bit more conventional, which would have been like, oh, we have this lake house called Sarah Laughs. It's named after this woman named Sarah Tidwell, who was a blues singer at the turn of the century. Uh, There is this weird thing that happens here where none of that is explained to you at all. It is just like, oh, yeah, Sarah Laughs, the house. Oh, did I mention? He doesn't even say, did I mention? Like, Mike is constantly approaching this material as if the reader might be expected to already know something about it. Yeah. 
Right. Part of this, I think, is a conceit that King is working with where he is trying to act as if Sarah Tidwell were like a real blues musician who was like who might be known, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Or it might be something else going on with like this narrator who I'll have more to say about that later. Uh, But yeah, like the so there's this weird, weird way that like you get introduced to Sarah Laughs as a house. And you're like, that's a weird name, but like, sure, people, when people, especially wealthy people have like a second home that has a name, that name might be weird. Like it's, who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a cool name, but then suddenly like Sarah laughs is also a person. So the house is also a person or it's related to a person. And then eventually we turn, we, we find out that there's like a whole local history about this woman and uh, sort of this specific region that ties into why the house might be named the way way that it is um let's talk about the kid in the road oh yeah let's talk about all these old folks let's talk about the ghost okay so after mike arrives at the lake house he's hanging out there uh everyone's oh the, the one of the reasons he goes is that he realizes that he and joe did not go for the last like maybe year or two that they were married which was weird because they went up every year before then he feels mm. bad that he didn't even notice that they weren't going because he was so wrapped up in his work and this plays into his anxieties about joe and what she was up to him him realizing like holy shit i was so dedicated to working on my novels that I didn't realize that my wife was, like, going out and doing stuff constantly. Because, like, not only, it turns out, were they not going up to the lake house uh, during the last couple years, she actually was going up there. She wasn't going up there to stay, but she was making regular trips to the TR because people start mentioning after he's back, oh, we're so sorry about Joe, Uh, the last time she was up here, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, wait a minute, what? She was up here? Oh, yeah. Like, and it turns out she was up there just, you know, a few months before she died. But she never mentioned that she was going up. And so he starts digging into, like, why was she up here? What was she doing? Yeah. Uh, uh, it, in in some ways, it's a horror novel about discovering that your wife is an independent human being. Yeah. <laughs> with, like, thoughts and feelings of her own. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so he's, he's digging into that. Um, and then one day he is driving down the road heading into like the little like close enough to town center and he almost runs over a little girl who's i think like three or four years old who's just like marching down the road toward the lake and my god isn't she the cutest moppet of all time i hate this kid (laughs) she she loves to uh swear and not realize that little kids shouldn't be swearing and she loves to say the wrong word for things like she's saying cross mock instead of crosswalk she just a well baby who do who do all the cutest stuff (laughs) so she's also weirdly enough like an x-men character yeah yeah no because she turns out to be the most powerful psychic of the main (laughs) cast aside from him. yeah she's got the shining Uh uh-huh He's uh-huh. also got the shining. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody, you and you get the shine, and you get the shine, and you're a ghost, and you're a ghost. That also <laughs> happens, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this this little girl turns out to be named Kyra. Um, she has a mother named Maddie. Their last name is Devore. Maddie is like 21 or something, uh, and her husband recently died. 
Uh, he was the son of Max Devore, who is a guy from the TR originally, who then went out into the world and has become like a tech billionaire. Maybe he's just a millionaire. I don't know. Anyway, like it's 1998 and the internet is here and people are making money off of it and King knows about it. Right. So, uh, there's like immediately all of this like weird intrigue and small town drama where, uh, you know, like well, what's going on here? Like, why did he leave? Like, why did his son come back? Like, if he has so much money, why is uh, why are Maddie and Kyra so immediately recognizable by Mike as uh, white trash? Because this is this is a big chunk of that first encounter is him like being like, oh, wow, she's like such a young mother. Uh, like one of the first things he's, he thinks of after he rescues Kyra from the middle of the road is like imagining her as a teen mom. There's just like a lot of uncharitable classism that comes out. Oh, of yeah. 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 Uh, this this poor, you know, poor, uh, impoverished, foolish child and her foolish mother. Uh-huh. But her mother's hot because we got to have like in there. Bro, first- she's so hot. She's so beautiful. She would be so beautiful. Oops. Did I accidentally touch her breast while leaning into the car? I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's no good. Yeah. Um, so immediately there's this like weird thing going on. Like we also, it it is made very clear that, uh, Mike has not had sex in however long, like since his wife died. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, immediately he's kind of, uh, having all of these really complicated and weird thoughts about Maddie. Um, but, uh, basically it turns out that, uh, when, her husband and her got married. There was some sort of falling out with his father, which is why they didn't receive any financial support. Uh, it turns out now that after her husband died in kind of this weird accident, he like fell off a a, a ladder, right? While doing something, I think with the roof uh, and broke his neck. Um, he, uh, he, he died. And now uh, his father, Max DeVore, the, the tech rich guy is, uh, trying to prove that she is an unfit mother so he can get custody of Kyra. So because she's like, you can't tell anyone that you found her walking down the road like this because it'll be used against me. And uh, Mike is like, oh, OK, yeah, sure. Uh, whatever, whatever's going on. Um, so that's where like the custody battle legal drama thing kicks off where he realizes like, oh, this is a young woman in trouble. Uh, I'm a guy with means. I am going to help her. Right. He he hires a an attorney for her, uh, like a custody lawyer. But then he's also it, in the process here is being uh, looked at by everyone in town as basically a dirty old man. Like, oh, his wife died. Now he's up here and now he's like helping her out. And he also feels, I think, guilty because that's that is kind of partly why he's helping her is because she's she's hot. He thinks she's a hundred percent. He he keeps being like, and you know, because we get a lot of his you know internal monologue, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know, I just think it's important that uh, you know young women who have been dealt a bad hand don't get taken advantage of. But goddamn, she's hot! Wow, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's just like it's a hundred percent like King, like playing on that. You know, the white bourgeois novel, right? Like, men are complicated, Michael. Yeah. They can be good and horny. Mm-hmm. Please, please. No need to applaud. <laughs> right. And I'm, this is- I'm merely a writer. 
I'm not a hero. You don't have to call me a hero. You can just think it. Right. No, please, please hold the applause. But I, there's a lot of that. And it just goes on. That is the thing that goes on for too long. I want half that. Because I'm under no illusion that we can get rid of all of it in a yeah. Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. I want half that. Double the ghost stuff. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? Give that, me more ghosts. That would be a good recipe. Let's multiply the ghosts. Get that old guy. Let him be a more weird ghost. I know he's in this so little. It's fun. So I remember reading this like fairly, you know, maybe early, I think, in my Stephen King reading career. And I remember so much about Max DeVore and the man shows up in one scene. Yeah, it's you really only made him one time. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he's Professor X. Yep. <laughs> maybe that's why I remembered him so strongly. I was like, oh, Professor X is here. Um. I mean, yeah, I don't know if we like have cashed this out, but really like the whole the whole book, like like the whole custody battle thing is they just go back and forth a lot over like, will she maintain custody? Will she not? At one point, a character explicitly says this is a direct quote. It's like a John Grisham novel. They they do say that. Yeah. And I guess it is like a John Grisham novel. You'll have to pay attention to our next podcast that be that we begin in five years called Dishin on Grisham. That's right. Um, one dish of Grish. <laughs> He's another guy who likes baseball. Um, other uh, I don't know highlights of this plot. I mean, there is no point in recounting the whole thing. It literally is just like, and they make a move, and we make a move, and mm-hmm. they make a move, and we make it for like. Way too long. Right. Oh, it turns out Max has, like, used his means to uh, pay off some, like, minor official in the local court system. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, stacked in his favor and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think maybe the most interesting element of this, uh, before we get to the end of the novel, is the uh, lawyer, the attorney that he ends up getting hired for Maddie, is this guy named John Storo who is also kind of into Maddie and is more age appropriate. Uh, yeah, everyone's horny for this yeah. uh, rural route, Jeep driving woman. Yep. 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 Everyone's horny for Maddie. But what is interesting about Storo uh, in the way that he like sort of comes into this, right. Is uh, Mike recognizes him as interested in Maddie and also recognizes him explicitly as more age appropriate. And then feels very ambivalent about that. He's like, well, that may be the case, but she, I'm also a man and she's really hot. So it's fine for me to feel this way about her. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. And like, maybe she likes me more. Maybe, maybe she likes me more. Maybe she's going to choose me. She does choose him, right? She does go for him, even though John is also into her. Um, wow. But, uh, I think the, the compromises most- men make Michael, I mean, this is like, this is part of the complexity of just being a man. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you're a lawyer and you're young and (laughs) the hot rural route girl just goes for the aged writer. But here's where this gets really interesting, okay? This is like, this is subtle in a way that I don't associate with King. Um... So, uh, I mean, truly, like, there, and and it doesn't really exactly... This is subtle in a way I don't associate with King. The ghost jerks him off. (laughs) Even, even more subtle than that. Do you remember what color Maddie's husband's hair was? Red. 
Uh-huh. Do you remember what color John Storrow's hair is? No. Red. Okay. Do you remember what problem Maddie's husband had that made him something of a social outcast? His neck was broken. No. Oh. I mean, yeah, I think that was a major problem. That was a big problem. What that problem did make him had, kind of the had... final outcast and like like they cast him into the graveyard. But before uh, then, he had like a maybe, maybe he had a speech issue. I don't remember. Yeah, he had a stutter, right? A stutter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do remember that then. Uh, There is a scene right after, for the first time, that Mike realizes that John is into Maddie, uh, Mm -hmm. that they are having a conversation on the phone, and like a joke gets made. Uh, And John starts laughing really, really hard. And so from that point forward, throughout the rest of that scene, all of his speech is stuttering. So there's like this way in which like the ghost of her husband is there, right? He's this attorney. And he's not being recognized by either of them. Huh. Right? There's a lot of ghosts in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, literally, he's not, you know, literally a ghost, but this is something like it's King doing kind of like a psychological ghost maneuver, right? He's like making this character very clearly parallel a previous character. um, And like... both Maddie and Mike can't see it happening, right? They like, there's something, I I mean, I, as much as like, you know, King allows himself like the, uh, sexualization of Maddie and her goddamn teacup breasts. That's how they're Mm -hmm. constantly referred to. Right. Yeah. The, as much as that sort of happens, there does seem to be a real sense, like, uh, on the level of narrative that like Mike is, kind of a self-involved jackass and Maddie might also not be making the best decision in like going for him over John. Hmm. Right. There, there's something there about like, uh, I think this, this book, I think wants to have like the older man, younger woman, uh, romantic tension. And at the same time, it doesn't want to become like the wish fulfillment fantasy of that because spoilers, Maddie dies. And she dies before anything could be consummated between her and Mike. It's very cool, actually. And, yeah. and King is is like deeply dismissive of his own maneuver here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bummer. I think the like bizarre drive-by shooting is cool. Yeah. But we'll figure yeah. we'll we'll learn more about that. Yeah. Uh, you start to notice that all these people around the TR have like <laughs> names cameron no, for instance no i don't until this happens in the book until until we get the uh like um uh the the parallax view moment mm-hmm. you know the manchurian candidate reveal yeah i did not know oh well because i'm foolish well, Mike sort of does, right? Because this is one of the reasons that he feels so drawn to Maddie and Kyra, other than that Maddie is so hot, is that uh, Kyra, her name, uh, is very similar to the name yeah. that he and his wife had picked out for their hypothetical daughter, which is Kia. Um, like a Kia Sorento. I know. I thought that. I, I Actually, I need to look that up now. Like, when did Kias go on the market? Because I feel like... Uh, that would have really like tipped the scales in terms of uh who's naming their kid Kia. Uh, but anyway, that's that's a thing that's going on. Is all these people have K names? Uh, the legal plot goes back and forth, and then there's this ghost stuff going on. So he finds out that Joe was up around the TR. She was asking questions, looking into things. 
she was she 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 was a part of like all these like associations and organizations like because Mike made enough money writing, she didn't really have to work. And so she just had a a series of kind of like philanthropic pursuits, essentially. Um, plus like artistic hobbies. Yeah. And he finds out that she basically quit all of the organizations that she was a part of and was zooming around the TR, asking questions, interviewing people, and also making people angry, asking questions that people thought maybe they shouldn't be asked. And it all had to do with doing research on Sarah Tidwell, the influential black uh, blues musician who for a time uh, lived uh, near the TR with her extended family, like a whole family of, of uh, like African-American, like blues singers. Yeah. Uh, and kind, then they kind of a performing group. Yes. Um, and at some point it was like, in, it literally, it's like in 1901 or something. It's, it's a nice, uh, close to even year. Uh, they were there and then suddenly they weren't like the, the, the group picked up and left and no one was ever really sure why. Uh, but that's also where the name Sarah laughs comes from because, uh, one thing about Sarah Tidwell that she was famous for other than her singing is that she apparently had a very distinctive laugh or she laughed a lot. Uh, eventually Mike has a big bizarre fever. Well, okay. Actually other things are happening. Weird ghost shit around the house, right? Uh, magnetic letters on the fridge seem to be moving around and spelling out words when no one else is, is there. Uh, Very there's cool. stuffed moose head on the wall with a bell around its neck. And that bell seems to ring sometimes. Uh, he straight up hears like a child crying. In the darkness of his house, uh, he hears something in the basement, like banging on the wall and like communicating him, communicate, communicating with him by like the number of times it bangs on the wall. Creepy ghost stuff. Scary. Yep. Then he has uh, a fever dream. Where and it's not exact. I mean, it's not literally a fever dream, but he compares it to a fever dream that he had when he was a kid where it was like very weird and dissociative. Where three things happen simultaneously because, like, he is in the dream. He is in, like, three different spots simultaneously. One is, uh, like, outside the house, uh, on the road, where everything is, like, decorated with, uh, like, fair lanterns and stuff. And he can hear music playing down the road. And he realizes, like, oh, that's uh, Sarah Tidwell uh, and all of her uh, folks. Like, they're, they're, like, playing music down there. Uh then he is also in bed with Maddie, and then he is also, like, on the lake on a raft with Joe. And in all three simultaneously, he is having sex with Joe, having sex with Maddie, and getting a hand job from Sarah Tidwell. Yeah. Uh, and this is the point where we realize, like, oh, all of this is connected somehow because Sarah Tidwell, in, in sort of her aspect of the dream, is, like, talking about other things like like she's she she is not a character in the novel up to this point uh but suddenly like it seems like she is having some sort of influence on the events that are going on uh well there you go that's the scene where one guy gets to have sex three times simultaneously <sighs> many people have asked uh is there a way that a fictional character could have sex two times simultaneously mm -hmm. and history has said no 
Stephen King is brave enough to ask, what if three times? And hell yeah. <laughs> it's bad. It's terrible. Yeah. It's garbage. Yep. It doesn't work. It's silly. That's the that's actually the real problem, right? Mm-hmm. Being in the book, whatever. It's just silly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't play. It makes him he he you know you uh, in the notes. I think you called him the worst guy. I just said he basically sucks. <laughs> he basically sucks. This is where I was like, he basically sucks. Mm-hmm. Like this is it. This is all you got. But anyway, then there's like divorce shit going back and forth, bing a bang a boom. Mm-hmm. He uh he learns more about this uh you know dealio right like which, what's which actually dealio uh, about the ghost stuff that we okay, were talking yeah. about like he actually learns about kind of the stuff there and really it just turns into like evil Professor X Bill Gates shows up mm-hmm. in in the flesh mm-hmm. and terrorizes him mm-hmm. um. I guess the only other thing that we haven't talked about here is like his discussions with the old fellas. What yeah. do you think about the old guys in the T- the old people in the TR? Right. Well, uh, this is, you know, a rerun. It's something we've seen before, right? These guys are all kind of Judd Crandall. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Like I, a town of Crandalls. Yes. Right. Yeah. Judsville. Uh, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of Judd Crandalls here on the TR. The They're like caretakers. They're... We also saw these in a lot of the the Castle Rock stories, right? The old guys who work as caretakers, largely. Um, the ones who know about the history of the town and are also, mm-hmm. like, keeping things secret. Uh, I don't know. Like, it, it's... It is interesting that uh, the, 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 the positive feelings that obviously are directed toward Judd Crandall, for instance, even though... Uh, Judd has kind of his oversteps or his indiscretions. Uh, those are kind of gone with with these guys. Like it turns out all these guys are kind of bad. The only one who gets to be sort of good is the one who is still his like housekeeper or like his caretaker. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the end, when everyone is being like psychically manipulated to go uh, uh, wait for the uh sacrifice to happen this is if you haven't read this book this is where we're heading um everyone's just kind of like waiting around in their cars for the sacrifice to happen he's the only one who doesn't go uh so he's like he's like good on you whatever your name was you know your name Uh uh-huh um god what is the name of his bill yeah, I think it's Bill, something like that. I'm forgetting the names on this one because I actually finished it like almost a month ago. I yeah. think. Bill Bjorn. Yeah, Bjorn. Bjorn Bjornson, I think, is the name of Bj- his, yeah. his old main. Caretaker. No, actually, that's like unacceptable. <laughs> there's a, there's a very funny part where they're like, and you know the new names, and they're like all Italian. <laughs> yes. There's a real like. Well, I don't. I don't really. There's some main shit going on here that I don't understand. Um. But yeah, I I love the scene. So like we've talked through whatever, 450 pages of this book. Mm -hmm. Not a lot. There's just a lot of repetition of these kinds of events, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of like atmosphere, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
some great atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of like, and then I called this guy on the phone. And then he told me this is what's happening in the adoption proceeding. And then I called this guy on the phone and he told me this other thing. There's just a lot of that stuff, right? Uh, the the kind of getting toward the end is when like Devor shows up in person to the town because he's going to win the divorce proceeding. You mean the custody proceeding? There, no, he's going to win. The, he's going to get divorced first. Okay. And then, no, yeah, you're right. Custody <laughs> proceeding. Sorry. Uh, dead wife. I, I got. I have to do my. Uh, uh, if if wife is dead, <laughs> uh, 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 custody is had. You know. <laughs> if wife alive, divorce abide. You know, one of those. Um, but he shows up and they start whipping rocks at his head. <laughs> it's just- it is. Is such a banal like <laughs> form of violence that is legitimately kind of scary. It like, is what so would happen weird. if someone came and showed up and bullied you by throwing rocks at you? What would you do, it, it's, adult? I know. I. It's so weird because it is. On the one hand, I feel like it could be so much better than it is. Like there is something here, and then on the other hand, there are so many details of it that just feel surreal. Like it's so bizarre. Uh, yeah, like, so Devor has shown up implicitly before and he's like called Mike on the phone and made like threats or whatever. Uh, but he shows up in person in his little motorized wheelchair that is very much like the Professor X wheelchair. And yeah. he, he is with his, uh, See, this is a, a wonderful reemergence of 80 Steve, by the way. Uh huh. Because he way over explains how you might have a Professor X wheelchair in the year 1997. Yeah. Because yeah. he's like, and of course it's a very smooth ride because it has a series of wheels in the back that all have their own suspension on them. So they would all be able to independently move up and down, keeping the ride very smooth. <laughs> and like, essentially, he just wants to be like, and you, he, it looks like he hovers over the ground because of this, right? Mm-hmm. It's just very funny. Like it's a it's an impulse we have not seen in a long time. Yeah, and it's I don't know exactly where it's coming from. If like we're we're supposed to be impressed by this wheelchair, or if it's like a signal of like how wealthy Devor is, maybe. Yeah. Um. Uh. And he also looks bad. He's like on oxygen because you said he's like he's like Frank from uh Blue Velvet, where he has to take oxygen every so often. He is accompanied by this woman named Roguette Whitmore. Uh, who actually, this is another thing that I want to zoom back to real quick. Uh, it turns out that, like, uh, Kyra has occasionally been uh, in the care of uh, Max and Roguette. Like, there was a, a an arrangement at the beginning after her husband died where Maddie agreed to, like, let her, like, hang out with them. That's He moved back to the TR specifically, apparently, to hang out with his granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We get a line from Kyra very early on where she calls him her white papa. Yeah. And Mike doesn't ask about that. Like, he doesn't observe that or that, like, doesn't question, like, what does that mean? Like, what the hell is going on that your kid is calling grandpa white papa? And that's still kind of a question mark for me at the end. Like, there, there are things we can bring that into dialogue with, but it's one of those moments where I feel like... Any other human being would be like, hey, your kid's saying an odd thing. What, what's that all about? Um, but uh, 
the other thing to then note is that this Roguette woman is called the White Nana. This is slightly more uh, explicable in that she is incredibly pale. Mike at one point explicitly wonders uh, whether she might uh, have albinism, uh, mm. which is another like thing that I think is Steve working thematic stuff, right? This this like figure who is all white. Uh, there's actually another scene where like uh, he makes a point at calling like a clown's makeup white face. Uh, that is all I think him him trying to like build something up for what is going to happen when we talk about like the race issue when it really comes to the fore at the end of this novel. Now, can I offer you a different explanation? Sure. Um, maybe they had just come back from Diddy's yearly party, the all white everything party. <laughs> Have you thought about that? <laughs> maybe they're wealthy. Yeah, they might be invited. That's true. That's true. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> she's, she's Max an Devore idea and Diddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. She Roget- whips rocks at his head. Yeah. Roguette is there, and she starts whipping rocks at his head, and it turns out like Devore is there, like cackling, and he's like, "Uh, she was like a professional pitcher in a women's league. How do you like that? Ha 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 ha." I liked it a lot. I thought it was fun. <laughs> it's so because like Mike is just like, I was stuck in the lake. Like I was in the lake and this lady was throwing rocks at me and I couldn't do anything about it. A couple of them hit me. It really hurt. I think they're going to drown me here in this lake throwing rocks at me. Yeah, he. uh, uh He gets clobbered right in the noodle. Mm-hmm. He gets hit right in the head. It's good. Yeah. And the entire time he's like kind of trying Devor that is, is is basically they're, you know, they're trying to intimidate him, trying to get him to like give up on uh, helping Maddie and whatever. And then after that, like that night, uh, Devor goes home and dies. Now, explain this to me. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go home and die. Like abstract, it do, he doesn't go home and is like struck by lightning, right? No. Mm-hmm. He goes home and and uh, is a suicide. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it seems very clear that he like uh, uh, goes home and like kills himself. Well, yeah, you like put, puts a bag over his head yeah. or some shit, right? Yeah. All right. Is this a bid to? Uh, is he trying to like get ghosted? I think so. I think we're supposed to. But that doesn't really pan out, right? No, it doesn't, right? Okay. I I also, I got the sense that he's doing kind of some like Horace Derwent stuff with the overlook. Yeah, that was my thought too. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm super old. I've come back here. I've come back here. And like, because he basically before he dies, he like gives up the custody battle. He's like, you know, you do these things and I'll let it go. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he like does this thing, and my thought is like, oh, he's gonna give up the battle in the in the physical world, and he's gonna go ghost mode on their asses. And then he didn't go ghost mode on anyone's ass. Yeah, I I was very confused by that. I thought maybe I missed something, but you're telling me I did not. No, well, I think like we might be able to take it as some suggestion that he did get ghost moded because so the other thing that happens is that Mike starts having these dreams where he is 
uh, back in time at like an old you know, early 1900s fair and Kyra is there occasionally and he sees the um, the ancestors of like the various dudes from around the lake from like the right. TR dudes. And like one of them is the leader and it's Devor's ancestor, like his great great grandfather or something. Um, and he looks real in the way in a way that many of the others don't. And I think one of the things we are maybe to uh, take from that is that somehow Max Devor dying has like merged him with his ancestor or like given his ancestor's ghost some juice. Uh, I don't know. But also that doesn't that ghost doesn't really do anything. So shrug. I don't know. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. Turns out there's a bigger, better ghost. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Sarah laughs herself uh, is, is the main ghost. Uh, and she has been working uh, through the century to make uh, the TR pay for something. Uh, and Mike mm -hmm. goes back and forth on what exactly is happening here because he thinks that like, oh, like he he finds out that um one of the children from the Red Tops, that's like the name of the, the like performing group, one of the children died. Uh, and that was given as a reason for maybe like why everyone left. Uh, and then he thinks like, oh, maybe she like killed her child or something or like uh, that, whatever. Uh, the the official explanation of how this kid died, by the way, mm -hmm. is so much worse than actually what happened. Yeah, it's it is the ex he uh, the official the explanation. official explanation is he was caught in a trap and yeah. died in the woods. Mm -hmm. That's fucking horrible. Yeah, I mean, what happens is also horrible, but that's like uniquely horrible, right? Um, in reality, he was he was murdered. He was drowned. Mm -hmm. You could imagine somewhere meeting in the middle here and be like, he accidentally drowned. not he was murdered. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the official town explanation is just like a 1% most awful things that can happen to a human being. Yeah. So that's what happened. Um, but it happened shortly after, or like shortly after that happened. I can't remember the exact order of operations on this. Uh, we get a whole flashback about it. Oh, and this is the oh, this is the other important thing, and this is where some of the Dark Tower stuff starts going in, is that, like, these dreams that are about the past might not actually be dreams about the past, but some sort of, like, weird limited time travel. Hmm. Like, Mike has, has very strong feelings that he has actually gone back to 1901 or whatever, and he's, like, getting in and out of this weird dream past fair fantasy by going through some freestanding doors. Huh. Question mark, question mark. Yeah, question it's mark. also a um, kind of the green mile, right? Like the experiencing what coffee experience thing that happens there. Yes. Mm -hmm. When so, I was reading, there was another thing that made me think of two from here, but I can't now I can't. I mean, it's I guess it's also wizard and glass. I mean, he pulls the same trick. They all feel like they were there, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, that's all happening, uh, but it turns out that uh, Sarah herself is like working this vengeance upon the TR where every member of uh, these kind of like four or five families, once a generation uh, loses a child to drowning or something like that. Some, some similar kind of drowning thing. And all of the children that they lose have those K names like Kyra mm -hmm. or Kenny or Kia. 
uh, what have you. Um, and in kind of a big expository flashback, we learn that this is because uh, Max DeVore, uh, his great great grandfather, who was a, a a Civil War vet, but not like a Civil War veteran because he believed in uh, the emancipation of of slaves. Uh, he seems to have just done it because it was a thing to do, but he had uh, very racist opinions nonetheless. Uh, he comes back to Maine after that, and he gets he is very upset that there are, he's working as a logger. And he's very upset uh, that these uh, blues music- musicians have taken up in whatever meadow, right? Tidwell's mm-hmm. Meadow is what they call it. Um, and so there's a lot of like confrontations uh, between or not really confrontations like this. is That's actually this is what pisses him off is that there aren't enough confrontations. He sees uh, Sarah Tidwell walking up and down the road and like being greeted by the other white folk of the TR uh, as if she belongs there. And so he can't stand that. Uh, eventually things escalate to where, uh, they catch her alone, he and his cronies, uh, they rape her and then kill her and then they kill her son, who is a witness to, uh, at least part of what they do, uh, and then they hide the bodies, and ever since then, uh, Sarah's spirit has, like, manipulated the, the, the descendants of these men, uh, to once a generation kill one of their own children by drowning. Yeah. Does she make them do it or do they just do it? Well, there's a bit where uh, in one of the like maybe dream sequences or something where she says to Mike something like, I'm almost back. Yeah. And it's very, uh, very much suggested. So how one of the ways that this plays out is um, after Maddie dies, Maddie gets shot. Um, she's killed yep. in a drive-by shooting that is, uh, a, like, they celebrate uh, divorce, like, letting go of the divorce proceedings and then dying by having a little cookout at her trailer. Um, she is killed in a drive-by shooting, it turns out, uh, by two men who were uh, divorce cronies. And you're like, whoa, that's weird. Why would that happen? Well, it then means that uh, Kyra can now be scooped up by Mike who it turns out is also a descendant of one of these families. He didn't know about it because there's like some shenanigans going on with his own family history, but he has roots in the TR. He was one of the, or he's like a descendant of one of the men who, who uh, did this horrible thing. Uh, He takes Kyra back to his cabin and then prepares to drown her uh, under some kind of like weird psychic compulsion. Yeah. This is another thing I didn't like. Like I don't like the like the because it's flagged early on. Right. He's like, my my Noonan's had, uh, you know, uh, origins in Maine, but not this part of Maine or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like so pain to like work this around to being about like genetic lineage, Uh you know, cursed lines. Uh huh. It doesn't have to be about that. No. Like that. That's it's so contrived. Just let there be an evil go. Why can't in the year 19, when was this, 97? 98. In the year 1998, why can't we just have an evil ghost? Yeah, why not? Tell me. Tell me, America. I'm like one step away from a Stephen A. Smith <laughs> being irate about the ghost. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, that all happens. I I um I do think it's fun when she becomes like an evil ghost, like laughing and giggling all around and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Called the shape. Yeah, the shape. That's fun. Yeah. And it turns out Joe knew all of this. This is partly mm-hmm. how Mike puts this together is that Joe figured all this out and apparently was in some sort of like weird battle of wills with the ghost of Sarah. Uh, because it turns out that Maddie reports to uh, Mike that she once saw Joe in the TR and she was with another man. And that's when Mike yeah. thinks like, oh, God, she was cheating on me. It turns out that other man was uh, her brother, Mike's brother-in-law. And we find that out because he has a conversation with his brother-in-law who explains that uh, she came up to the house, made him stay outside the house, but she went in to do something. Uh, and he heard things going on. Legitimately in there. scary scene, by the way. Yes, right. Just, just him like sitting on the porch, not knowing what his sister's doing, why she's asked him to do this. She clearly asked him to do it for like protection reasons, but he doesn't know what he's protecting her from. Uh, stuff is going on in the house. He can kind of hear it. But then she comes out and she's like, fucking finally, like, I'm done. I don't have to worry about this. And she's like installed these. um like decoy owls, like the kinds of things that you would put on your house to keep uh, birds from nesting in your eaves or whatever. Uh, she's installed those because it turns out that owls are uh, some sort of, uh, they have some sort of mythological capacity to uh, turn away evil spirits too. Yeah, um, it's a, uh, uh, th- this is another, you know, speaking of everyone being a Judd Crandall, right? Uh-huh. We get another like Mi'kmaq, um, you know, uh, oh yeah, legendary. You know, like there's something, there's something in Dark Score Lake, and you know the Big Ma. They know that that owls protect you from the spirit world. You yeah, know, some of that going on. Yep. Uh, the other thing, then, aside from like John Grisham or whatever, that has also been, you know, uh, relative to that, that's being folded in here is uh, Peter Straub's ghost story, um, which is mm. also a story about, uh, like, it's a. It is a ghost story on the one hand, but also it's a ghost story that says like, hey, maybe there's some sort of uh, Native American spirit that's actually at the root of all this. And in that case, uh, in Straub's novel, it's it's a Manitou. Um, but uh, uh, the other like crossover there is that uh, uh, ghost story is a very literary novel in the way that uh, Straub was always more literary than King. Right. Like that. There's like four inset stories in that novel and each one like this is the Henry James story. This is the Edgar Allan Poe story. This is the Du Maurier story, like very in conversation with the lineage uh, in the way that King is also uh, trying to do here. Ghost story is also about a bunch of men who uh, do something horrible to a woman. uh, And then that woman's ghost comes back and starts killing their children. So. Real, real uh, 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 learning by seeing here, I think, on on King's part. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, Mike uses his incredible powers of uh, self-possession and also the aid of Joe's spirit to turn away the evil influence of Sarah, which is goofy as hell. Honestly, it, it, it becomes kind of like a, a almost like a superhero movie where we've got like dueling ghosts. Uh, well, they, yeah, and they are each, like, doing possessions and whatnot. Uh-huh. And then also, um, uh, 
her name is not Ronette. That's from Twin Peaks. What is that? <laughs> what What is her name? Rogat. Rogat. And she shows up, and her wig gets knocked off. Yeah, that also happens here. Yeah, it turns it's out it's a she's, real. She's, uh, <laughs> it's a real Stephen King. Just just let him fight kind of thing it turns out she's like devore's illegitimate daughter no not illegitimate oh she's like uh early in the book it's like she uh, roger is the other one maybe yeah and so it's like she's just not in the picture mm. she's like estranged oh okay because they have a twin they have the doubled names that show up in other places in the book right yeah uh, and so, no, she's just like it has been pretended as if she was off, you know, being disowned or whatever. But in fact, she's been here the whole time. Oh, my God. Who can imagine it? <sighs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so they all have a big old scrumble. Uh-huh. And uh, he he it. I don't know why he comes to the conclusion that this is what you have to do. And the epilogue is especially weird mm -hmm. in this context. But uh, but he's like, I guess I got to dig up this bag of bones. Yep, yep, yep. So the bag of bones uh, line, it's a good title. And it comes from a uh, quote that may or may not be real that he remembers one of his uh, literature professors giving him in college. From another writer, I think mom, maybe, um, <clears throat> saying that, or maybe it was a Thomas Hardy quote. Maybe I think it's Thomas Hardy. This is, again, like Stephen King is being like, oh, you think I'm the Schlockmeister? Well, would the Schlockmeister have opinions on Thomas Hardy and Jude the Obscure? Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a quote that, like, all literary characters are nothing more than a bag of bones or something like that. Uh, and then that ends up being literalized where one of the messages that he gets from the letters, the magnetic letters on the uh, on the fridge is lie still, but it's spelled L-Y-E. So he ends up using a bunch of lie to dig up the uh, bag of bones that is left over from where Sarah was killed and buried. And then he dissolves her bones with the lie. Yeah. Um. So there is this, yeah, like the, the 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 end of this novel, or rather like sort of the conclusion of this, ends up in a very confused place where, on the one hand, it wants to acknowledge that like Sarah and the Red Tops like faced racism, right? Like the the one of the big um uh sort of separation points he has with his caretaker, with Bill, if that was his name. If that's I don't know. That's uh, something. But he Bjorn. Bill is like talking about them and he's like telling him to, to stop looking into it and like what happened to them. And he's like, and who cares? They were just a bunch of people from away. Right. And he has that moment where uh, Mike realizes he almost said a racial slur. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's weird. These 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 white people in, in the rural United States have some bad opinions on things. Uh, so there's a there's a real way that the novel wants to acknowledge like racism and like the place that it has in American history. But also the ultimate output of this is like this black woman's rage at what happened to her and her child and her family has gone too far and she must be yeah. stopped. Yeah. Well, it's also like individuated. Right. Right. Like it is about 
uh, her audacity as a human being, not the like reality that no matter what would have happened, they would have run run them out of town, right? Which mm-hmm. is like the kind of implication that we get. And that's why I'm saying that like there's so much here that's in conversation with Beloved in particular, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, especially with the killing of the child um, and the, you know, the the crying ghost and all of that and where that book, I don't know, is just like interested in thinking through those questions, right? Like what do people have to do to survive and uh, what is the weight of history? You know, I mean, it's just uh, if you haven't read Beloved, you should read it. Um, but that, you know, so that's part of it. And, uh, when it gets, so he's borrowing from those things and when it kind of gets, I don't know, folded into this other what's up with race in rural Maine story, that's when it really falls apart, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, because that, that book is about like the structure of American life, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. who, who gets to be counted among the dead in the living. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is like, what if, what if, what if a bad thing happened and the ghosts were real? You know, it's just yeah. it, the stakes are quite different. But he's pulling on it. I mean, you can see it on the page. So, anyway, that's all to say. Um, I don't find the game mechanic ending to be that interesting. Although it is wild to see in those last bits, like straight up Alan Wake shit happening. Uh-huh. You know, he's reading the pages uh-huh. about like what will inform his next decision or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's funny. <laughs> Uh, there's also like, I, I want to mention this because it's another way that like, I think King is trying to moderate, like, I think he's aware of what he's doing with like Sarah and how that might come off as odd. Uh, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that happens during the final ghost battle is Joe is there and she's like shouting to Mike. She's like, she let in an outsider. There's an outsider here, uh, which is implied to be this kind of like demonic presence that is actually the thing that is driving her, driving Sarah to like, quote unquote, go too far to like, you know, it's like feeding off of her rage or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also this is also a thing that shows up a lot in um actual like <clears throat> actual quote unquote uh haunted house stories particularly with the advent of uh the warrens right ed and lorraine warren uh famous uh for investigating uh the amityville haunting um and now uh as uh, uh the main characters of like the conjuring films right fictionalized versions of those characters uh what the warrens often did uh w- and if you like go through their case files, this comes up over and over again, is that uh, when they are investigating a haunting, there is this structure that occurs where there is a ghost. The ghost is like, you know, a ghost of a real person or, you know, there are several ghosts of real people who lived here or died here or whatever. Um, and then there is a thing behind the ghosts, which is a demon or a devil. And the reason that these ghosts of everyday people are torturing the people who live here now is that they have come under the thrall of this demonic presence that is like mm. using them to uh, uh, work devilry in the world. Um, so I think that that's an interesting thing that I noticed as well, right? That kind of um, logic that allows you to have uh, a scary ghost that is not an evil ghost, but then gives you a source for evil so you can still do evil ghost things. I love evil ghost things. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, uh, he like dissolves those bones. The ghost is laid to rest. And then uh, does he take possession of Kyra at the end? 
like take custody of her or is he just- uh, he's trying to in the epilogue yeah he's mm-hmm. trying to and he like it, because yeah. in the drive-by shooting a bunch of cool shit happened. i mean awful stuff maddie uh you know the young lady she gets murdered mm-hmm. john storo look at that i can remember two names <laughs> john storo gets shot in the arm and he might not ever get full use of it back again that's interesting mm-hmm. the other guy they're hanging out with gets shot in the leg and then blows up the car with his revolver. I know. <laughs> this he is straight a- up John McClane's that shit. It's right. cool. Yeah, this whole scene is actually like more like crime novel. Steve comes out of nowhere. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good. It's like good stuff. But anyway, uh, the epilogue is a little bit of like, well, what happened to all these people? And and um, John Storrow is like helping him get custody of of her at the end because mm-hmm. her whole family's dead. Yep. But also, he can't write anymore. Because the boys in the basement took it away. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to see how, at this point, like the Shining language is changing, right? It's not psychic stuff anymore. It's just like connection, uh-huh. you know? And he's got this language of the boys in the basement. Um, and I think, you know, that'll turn into like the warehouse in Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. which I think is a very similar idea. Right. You know, the engine of the the unconscious or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of like, this is the book that has the most talk about writing as a practice in it thus far. And it's worth noting that we've got on writing the nonfiction book, like just ahead. Like mm-hmm. King is obviously like thinking a lot about the process and what it means to be a writer and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, this is a story about a guy who who runs out of writing ability. Uh do we need to talk about the weird dance scene? I know it's like a real double back, but it's just, it's such an odd thing that happens. Well, you know, in the, in the minute where you thought you were going to have the most victory, uh huh. you know, everyone's chilling out. John Storrow, this is one of the, the best, uh, one of the best things in the book is that John Storrow, his lawyer, his like high powered attorney who shows up, but he's like a young guy. He gets off the plane wearing a We Are the Champion shirt uh-huh. and carrying a styrofoam cooler, which is just a funny image. Uh, they're all hanging out, drinking beers, eating steaks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she just she listens to what Don Henley so hard. Yeah. Boy, she's just got to dance. Yeah. Yeah. She hears the Don Henley song. All she wants to do is dance. And she says, Oh, I love this song. And right there in the middle of her celebratory barbecue, Maddie just starts dancing completely unselfconsciously. Uh, and it's one of the most beautiful things that Mike Noonan has ever seen. And all the other men there, because it's only men who are there, by the way. I This is a scene that gets really weird if there's another woman there. Or uh, uh, I don't know. It's Maybe already it weird. <laughs> it's already weird. It's it's. If it continues to play out as it does with another woman in the scene, the other woman is like, hey, what are you guys doing? Because everyone falls wrapped watching Maddie dance on a Frisbee. That's the other thing. It's like a Frisbee has (laughs) fallen. Yeah. It's a lot like, have you ever seen Roadhouse, the great American cinema classic? Have I ever Mm -mm. seen Roadhouse? Hmm, No, I don't think so. This is more of a conversation starter than it was a real question. Okay, okay. Let, Let me rephrase. You know, in the movie Roadhouse, uh huh. There's a scene when he first gets to the double deuce, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like the first night, right? And uh, a lady gets on the table, 
Mm-hmm. And she starts doing this weird little wiggly dance mm-hmm. where like her feet can't move because she's on this tiny bar table. Right. Right. And so she's just got to like shift back and forth kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's almost like a little paper doll or something. Mm-hmm. I imagine she's doing that dance. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. of, and of course, Dalton's got to go over and And Dalton as the cooler, right? He's not the bouncer. He's the cooler. Mm-hmm. Dalton says to one of the bouncers, he says, you got to get her off the table. And uh, he walked, you know, bouncer, he's polite because you're always polite. That's part of the deal, right? That's like part of what makes Dalton so good is he wants them to be polite. So he sends the bouncer over there. Bouncer goes over and says, hey, uh, ma'am, you got to get off the table. And he starts helping her down. And again, another guy pushes him, right? Mm-hmm. That's no good, right? Mm-mm. But the Mm-mm. cooler always keeps cool head. Bouncer has to be polite. He dusts off his chest you know he kind of gathers himself tries to get herself uh tries to get her down again guy pulls a knife on the bouncer and then dalton has to step in Mm -hmm. and here's the horrifying thing go put that up against the movie that's exactly what happens beat by beat (laughs) because i remember all of roadhouse (laughs) very yeah anyway they dance it's weird why do you want to bring it up I just want because it's so strange. I also uh, it was interesting how I encountered this because uh, a couple months ago, uh, a tweet started going around that someone sent to me because they're like, oh, my gosh, because it was Stephen King related. And it was someone Mm. talking about (laughs) I will never forget that in the middle of desperation, there is a scene where uh, a bunch of men stop in the middle of a barbecue to watch like a. 20 year old girl dance or something. And we had just recorded the desperation episode. And I looked at that post and I was like, what the fuck is this talking about? <laughs> that does not happen in desperation. Um, uh, yeah. And I didn't remember the scene at all. And then it shows up here. So like clearly the OP, right. Uh, had mixed up these books, but like, it's also, it, it is interesting to me that as someone who has read this book and who remembered quite a bit of it, I did not remember the Frisbee dance scene at all. No, I didn't remember this even a little bit. And it's, it's just, it's but just it hap- and then she is immediately murdered. Yes, right. Like that's her her moment of triumph, her like last moment of freedom, and then she's killed in a drive by shooting. Yep. Well, I don't know. That's that's the book, I guess. <sighs> there's, yeah, there's an epilogue. That's it. Yep. Um. Um. Oh, I guess, yeah, the uh, just the weird metaphysics of fantasy, just to make that explicit, like the by the end, right, this idea of like the outsider being brought in and like Mike having all of these uh, weird feelings of um, uh, like running, like running through the doors in his dreams. And we get a actually I don't let me double check this. There is no. No, I'll save it for uh, King of Earth. Then I'll save it uh, for then. Yeah, let's talk about it, because it's such a weird thing that shows up at the very, very end. Mm-hmm. Also, I we we cannot, I cannot stress how graphic the scene of her being raped and murdered is. It's extremely. Like, graphic. if you're just listening to this and you're like, oh, you know, some like regular Stephen King, you know, go for the gross out shit. It, it is the most explicit he's ever been around any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anywhere. That is that horrifying. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad stuff. Um. All right. You want to do some segments? 
My favorite kingism is the segment where uh, we each of us pick something from what we just read that we thought was uh, indelibly kingy, a good bit of prose, something that is illustrative of the Stephen King style, or just some neat thing that we we noticed. Uh, for me, uh, my kingism this time is what I have called in the notes the narrator trick, uh, which is the way that I am trying to describe this thing that happens about halfway through the book where Mike suddenly starts getting very psychic about everything that is happening in the TR. Uh, and it's it's a really interesting effect because this is a book that is written in first person. Um, but uh, there's like how this uh, first presents itself is that um, Mike is talking on the phone with Maddie uh, he's at his house, she's at her house, she's called him, and so he's talking to her, and then just sort of effortlessly, in the stream of narration, he starts describing what she's wearing, and then, like, what Kyra is doing in the house behind her, and it's unclear if this is, like, guesswork on his part, or if it's, like, uh, he can hear Kyra, like, in the background, and so from that, he can deduce what she's doing, but as the rest of the novel proceeds, it becomes very clear that he is, like, having psychic images of other people in the TR that are like folding into his narr narrative. And so uh, by the end, when he is getting ready to drown Kyra, I already mentioned this, he can see all of the other old people from the TR who have like left uh, this like funeral service because it's uh, one of the one of the old people died. Uh, uh, they've left this funeral service and they all get in their cars and they like drive up to the TR and they're like all parked alongside of the road waiting. And even though he's not there, he sees all of this happening. Uh, and I just think that's really, you know, it doesn't exactly go anywhere, but it's kind of a neat effect that uh, this this writer character who is speaking in the first person and then like the little trick of, oh, he's like. He's actually he's describing things like a third person narrator, but he's still a first person narrator. What the hell's going on? Yeah. And the whole yeah, the whole thing being a memoir is pretty weird, too. Mm -hmm. Mine is on the page 391. I'm going to read you the whole sentence. I ordered the beans that were left over from Buddy Jellison's Saturday night beanhole supper. That's it. <laughs> Only the twisted mind of 90 Steve could come up with the bean hole supper. I've never heard that before in my life. And no one else on the planet would put that in a book. That's my favorite kingism. <laughs> uh, then what in the Kingiverse is the segment where we talk through the connections between what we just read and uh, the greater Stephen King multiverse more broadly. As mentioned... Uh, this novel starts in Derry. That's where Joe and Mike live. Uh, not only does it take place in Derry, uh, but we meet some recurring characters. We meet Joe Weiser, the, the pharmacist from Insomnia, who has like insomnia advice in, in that book. And here he's just kind of like, oh, it's the guy at the pharmacy, old Joe Weiser. Hmm. Uh, Ralph Roberts also shows up, also from Insomnia. Uh, and it's mentioned, he, he has a conversation with uh, Mike because they're, I think they like volunteer at the same, like at the same maybe homeless shelter or something. That's how they. Yeah, know each it's other. something like, or maybe like a soup kitchen, something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, he like gives them some advice. Yes. Like Ralph Roberts had given some. It's very early in the book, so I don't remember exactly what happened. 
Yeah. And it's it's uh, uh, King can't let it lie. He's like he, Ralph is like, oh, you're looking kind of tired. Do you have insomnia? <laughs> And Ralph was like, no, I did until I started sucking the life force out of teenagers. <laughs> Don't worry. It's like an ocean. Yeah. Then it's mentioned that um, a few weeks or months after that conversation, he heard that Ralph got hit by a car. Um, so I guess like insomnia happened, except notably, he doesn't mention anything ever the, about the suicide bomber plane. Yeah. The suicide bomber plane or even like the the storm from the 80s, which came up in insomnia. So I don't know. Maybe oh, yeah. Maybe it's a slightly different level of the tower. Uh, William Denborough is mentioned a couple times, however. That's Bill from It. Uh, he is the author who is positioned as being, I think, the most Stephen King-like. I think there's a passing reference to him being the most successful, but also he is no longer in the area. Thad Beaumont is mentioned. Thad Beaumont from The Dark Half, uh, who uh, lived around the Castle County area, right? That was a Castle Rock novel. It is mentioned not only did he get divorced after the events of the dark half, uh, but he also completed suicide. So the the downer ending of that novel has now really paid off. Ted, uh, I, I is there another King character who has been so thoroughly narrativized in a bummer way after their, you know, end of their actual book? Because, like, what was it, Needful Things? It was like, Dad Beaumont used to call me on the phone all the time. Wouldn't shut the hell up. <laughs> he's divorced as hell, and now we find out he's dead? Yeah. I, Jeez. I, I, yeah, it's really interesting, the the commitment to, like, revisiting Thad Beaumont after his novel and just, like, degrading his life further up until the point that he's dead. Right. It's interesting yeah. to me. Uh, you don't have uh, Alan Pangborn on here. Because uh, Alan Pangborn isn't mentioned. Alan Pangborn is absolutely mentioned, my man. When is he mentioned? Uh, when he, at the very end, maybe I marked it. Let me see if I marked it. So at the very end, when he's talking to the sheriff oh, and he's like right, reporting he's the thing. Morris. Yeah. And he says, yeah. And he says, where's Alan Pangborn these days? And uh, is it here? Yeah. It's like in the last chapter. Maybe I don't have it right in front of me, but he's like, where's Alan Pangborn? And he says, well, they mo he moved with uh, Polly and they're still doing okay. Yeah, she's got that arthritis, you know. Uh huh. It's like they they got a good uh, they got a good thing going on. Yeah, good. For That's them. fun. Yeah. Hey, uh, how many towns in this area you think can blow up? <laughs> it's mentioned. It's mentioned that um, <laughs> they don't talk about the fact that uh, Castle Rock got uh, exploded. No, uh, they don't. Right, but it is mentioned that the bridge that they come in over the town is like recently been rebuilt. <laughs> very funny mm -hmm. yeah so that's castle county we get some mentions of shawshank uh the sheriff that you're talking about there is norris ridgewick who is alan pangborn's like deputy he, that's a that's andy from twin peaks right like he's yep. he's the sheriff now uh royce merrill yeah, he's is the guy who did a, a rolling headshot right <laughs> yes oh god uh, the, the underwritten thing in castle county the land of the rolling headshot because this is two books that have taken place in Castle County where someone has driven by and shot someone in the head. Yeah. <laughs> it's really something. It's the it's the uh, lake air. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, Royce Merrill is mentioned. He it's not this is not played out, but uh, 
uh, probably, you know, we're to take him as being part of the, like, Ace Merrill, Pop Merrill lineage. He's also one of the people uh, imbricated in, like, the generations-long murder curse. Uh, I already mentioned that in the, uh, like, dream sequences, there are these, like, as Mike is running with Kyra through these dreams that may actually be some sort of limited form of time travel... Uh, he is going through doors and he has a scene where he's like running down a hallway and choosing doors like there are multiple doors and he's like hearing things through the other door specifically what he hears through one is as I stood before the second pair of doorways I heard a voice somewhere in the dark say quite clearly no the president's wife wasn't hit that's his blood on her stockings I walked on then stopped when I realized my da 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 so update the chart, Andy. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's not an explicit mention, but I think we're finally back to a Kennedy mention or like, you know, Kennedy illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this is like very dark towery. This idea That's of the like, name of my new book, by the way, wh- which which one? The Kennedy illusion. Yeah, there we go. Robert Ludlum. Uh, <laughs> the number 19 shows up a lot, too. So, yeah. Uh, more dark tower stuff uh, at the end when. Uh, Joe is screaming about the outsider uh, that to me also seems to be like we're maybe to take that in kind of a dark tower kind of way, because now we know that there are things like tack, you know, bebopping around the multiverse. Uh, but also Stephen King is in a bit going to have a novel called The Outsider. Are they the same outsider? Who knows? No. Oh, OK. I, no, I can tell you definitively. No. Oh, OK. Like there's no question in my mind. No. OK. The outsider in that book is like cryptid. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I, I can, I think I can confidently say that without spoiling anything. Okay, it's kind, that's kind of a cryptid story, or at least that you know what, I have not read the book. I only watched the TV show, so mm. maybe, maybe the book is different. Yeah, you know, I, I say all of that, but now thinking about the way the end kind of plays out, I don't know if it, it's presented as a cryptid, but is it? We're going to find out. What, what, what's the alternative to it being a cryptid? A regular thing? I, I can't say more because it's actually some of the fun stuff. I don't oh, want to okay. spoil all that. But, okay. Um, there's, a, there's a way in which like maybe this thing fitting into a genre framework is like part of its deal. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is pretty cool. All right. Uh, and then at the very end of the novel, in that epilogue that we've mentioned a couple times, Mike you know, talks again about writing. And he talks specifically about uh, the loss of Maddie. And he puts that up against um, kind of his own practices as an author. And this is, I think Mm -hmm. you alluded to this near the beginning of the episode about how the novel seems to like try to walk back what it did there with with Mike being like, I don't know how many times when I've been writing novels and I was stuck and I didn't know what to do, I... I just I killed someone right killing killing off a character was a way to get the narrative juices going again. Uh, And I feel really bad about that now that Maddie has been abruptly taken out of my life. And I'll never do it again because I'm never going to write again. Yeah, this is odd. Never going to do it again. I I, uh, what if he'd been like, 
And you know, I'd feel worse about it if I didn't know that there are a bunch of weird little gremlins running around cutting people's life force strings apart. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's why I bring this up, right? This is what I was saying uh, back in Insomnia, that this is like King being meta-reflective on his process about like what right. is going on when I try to move the plot forward by the famous example being The Stand. I don't know what to do in this story. Let's blow up half the cast. Yeah, fine. Go torture an elf about it. Right. Oh, geez. You want to tell me about the mixtape? Oh, so this is a weird-ass mixtape, and possibly one of the longest mixtapes we've had recently. A very surprisingly long mixtape for this novel. Yeah. Uh, This is the segment where we go through and we rate all of the songs that have been mentioned in the novel that we just read, because Stephen King loves music, and so do we. I'm starting us off. The first song on the playlist is uh, the traditional hymn, Blessed Assurance. Uh, one star. This is not a fun hymn. As people who are listening can tell, my voice is like blown out. Uh huh. And so I'm not gonna, you know, give my normal explanations for these. Okay. I'm just gonna give my stars for all of them. Okay. And if 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 you want clarification later, send it in for the next Q and A. If you want to know why I'm giving Jim Croce's "You Don't Mess Around with Jim" two stars. Ask me in a Q&A later. Uh, all right. Uh, the next song is MacArthur Park by Richard Harris. Uh, four stars. Like, this is a famously controversially bad song, or at least very weird, but by God, do I love this particular rendition. <laughs> uh, let's call the whole thing off. Attributed to Cole Porter, but he did not sing this song. One star. I think they should have called the whole thing off. Thought you weren't going to explain these things. I had to get that one. That's okay, too easy. Okay. Okay. Uh, Witch Doctor by the Chipmunks. Four stars. Wait. By Alvin and the Chipmunks? Yeah. Wait, is this ooh ee ooh ah ah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that song. I love how annoying it is. Bing bang. Uh, don't worry, baby. By the Beach Boys, three stars. Uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer by the Beatles, five stars. You actually in the thing oh. you've written, you you have six stars. Okay, I would. Can I give it six stars? Sure. Yeah, I yeah. like Maxwell Silver Hammer a lot. Yeah, like six stars. There we go. What a weird song. Uh huh. Why would anyone write this? Let alone <laughs> the Beatles. I know, and it's oh, it's so good because you know this is. I'm pretty sure I don't know my Beatles facts uh, down pat, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the ones that like Paul McCartney wrote and that John Lennon would have hated. Hey Ringo, <laughs> I wrote a song. It's called "A Man with a, a Hammer and He Kills People." <laughs> you think this is in? Uh, that should have been in that long ass documentary that that uh, Lord of the Rings guy made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There should have been four and a half hours dedicated to Maxwell Silver. <laughs> <laughs> should have been most of it. Hey, George. I've been thinking about this hammer song. <laughs> he murders them with the hammer. Uh, Shuck and Sugar Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson. Four stars. The song's good. Yeah. Uh, Baby Let's Play House by Elvis. Two stars. Party Lights by Claudine Clark. Clark. One star. Terrible. Uh, Black Mountain Rag by Doc Watson. Three stars. Papa Was Rolling Stone by The Temptations. Three stars. It's a good song. 
Uh, Wabash Cannonball by J- Johnny Cash, four stars. Ella Speed by Ian and Sylvia, two stars. In the Mood, Glenn Miller, two stars. Now, this is an Fish interesting and... one. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. I mean, the next one for you is an interesting one. Fish and Blues by Sarah Tidwell. The song is fake. <laughs> um, But it was made by an evil ghost. Yeah, yeah. Can I Can I read some of the lyrics? Do you want to go fishing here in my fishing hole? Said, do you want to fish some, honey, here in my fishing hole? You want to fish in my pond, baby? You better have a big, long pole. Um, one second. Hold on. So she's based off of, um, gosh, what is the woman's name? The the book recently came out about her, right? I'm not sure. God, this is going to kill me. Um, she's based off a real person, and I'm just blanking on the woman's name. Um, yeah, I don't know. Five stars. Is. It's fake. I mean, I just think like Stephen King wrote those lyrics. Oh yeah, but yeah, it's it's anyway. But uh, yeah, five stars. <laughs> Hold on, I want to see if I can pull up the book because I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, okay. Is she supposed to be based on Ma Rainey? I don't know. I don't know enough about Ma Rainey. I know what is said in the book that is that, um, she, Sarah Tidwell, not Ma Rainey, uh, the, the, the fish and blues thing is like, uh, her her signature style, which is a lot of like sexual double entendre, right? Well, what what is the name of their group? Uh, uh, Sarah and the Red Tops. Got it. Yeah, the Red Tops. Yeah, I don't. Anyway, it doesn't really matter one way or the other, but because <clears throat> of this weird composite historical thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this fake song that isn't real gets mm-hmm. five stars. Okay, cool. Um. Uh, Lovin' Mother Foya by John Mellencamp <laughs> is the next song. The context of this is very interesting because it is said that uh, there is a, like, a, a, again, like a, a a body double entendre that is made in a Sarah Tidwell song that John Mellen that does not exist, that John Mellencamp then adapts into this song that does actually exist. It's something about, like, someone, someone else's mule is kicking in your barn or whatever. Uh, the other historical note here, actually, that I think is worth pointing out, see, it's 1998. So certainly by this point, Stephen King and John Mellencamp are maybe talking about uh, what is going to become Ghost Brothers of Darkland County, the stage musical that they uh, produced together in the 2010s. So uh, mm. anyway, this song, not great. Two stars. Um, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Three stars. Good song. Hmm. Uh, Go Down Moses, traditional hymn, four stars. Uh, Jimmy Crack Corn, traditional <laughs> song. Half a star. Okay. We use review rules, so we can't <laughs> go below half a star. Zero stars doesn't make any sense. Right. So, half a star. But it might be said that, you know, Jimmy Cracks Corn and you don't care. No, actually, I, I, here's the deal. Jimmy Crack Corn. And I fucking hate it. <laughs> I think it's evil. Uh, Farmer in the Dell, two stars. 
Uh, can you can you sing a bar? <laughs> I ho the Dario. Oh, is that farming in the Dell? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I've got a Rolling Stone song that's not real uh-huh. called "I Regret You, Baby," which is like such a wonderful thing of Stephen King being like, "Well, if a black musician recorded it, the Rolling Stones had to have ripped it off." <laughs> I mean, that's exa- that's what happens in the book, right? He's like. Yeah. The of the Sarah Tidwell songs that are still around, we mostly only know the ones the Rolling Stones covered mm-hmm. because that's their deal. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. Two stars. Okay, yeah. Uh, I got Howling Wolf, which is another Rolling Stones song that is not real. Uh, I'll also give it two stars. Um, uh, as time goes by, by Dooley Wilson, one star. The Bare Necessities from Disney's The Jungle Book. Four stars. The simple bare necessity. I like that big bear. Mm-hmm. He's good. It's painful to me that children will be growing up watching some sort of like fake-ass photorealistic bear instead of a, a jumping jovial. I'm sorry, what now? In the live-action Jungle Book, the photorealistic bear is voiced by Bill Murray, I believe. I'm shocked. I'm appalled. It must be obliterated from the earth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I got Bubba shot the jukebox. You know what? I forgot to listen to this one while I was doing this one a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Let me do it. Well, let's do it live. I just missed it. Spotify is trying to give me Bubba Sparks. <laughs> no. Spotify, I don't want to know about Miss New Booty today. <laughs> Who he found. All right. Bubba Shaw at the Jukebox by Mark Chestnut. All right. Here we go. All right. Have you heard the song? I have. I have a story about this song. It's a little funky. Uh-huh. Why don't you tell the song while, or why don't you tell the story while I'm listening to it? Well, as a child growing up in rural Indiana, there were several adult men in my life who referred to by the word Bubba. Um, yeah. So yeah, same. when this, when this song, uh, came out in the early 90s before I had actually heard the song and also being a child, I heard someone refer to the song about Bubba shooting the jukebox and I thought that this referred to one of the real men that I knew who had shot a jukebox. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, why would he do that? And it turned out it was a song. Okay, I've listened to the first 45 seconds. It's good. Just sounds like some fucking country music. <laughs> from 1992 or whenever this came out yeah three stars uh welcome to the jungle by guns and roses five stars mama 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 meet knees knees <laughs> i got and we danced by the hooters this did this come up on a previous thing i don't know i don't think it I don't know why I know this song, but it's five stars. This is one of the greatest songs ever made. Mm -hmm. It's really good. It is like a perfect, like, 1980s pop rock song. Yes. Uh, What is not that is All She Wants to Do is Dance by Don Henley, uh, which is the song that Maddie dances to. And I gave this two stars. I'm actually going to take it down to one star just because I find this song unbearable. Wow, I'm watching him edit the document in front of me. It really, yep. he really did it. Yep. Um, I got Dixie, uh, half a star. Okay. Uh, shall we gather at the river? Another traditional hymn. Uh, four stars on this one. 
I got trust and obey, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, until I listened to it at one star. Okay. Who cares? Uh, I love to tell the story. Another traditional hymn. Yeah, two, two stars, whatever. Well, is this the lowest on average scoring mixtape? I don't know. I had a lot of four and five stars. But I had mostly one and half a stars, though. I feel like this works out that way a lot. And I'm not doing yeah. that consciously. Really? Yeah. No, how okay. the mixtape works is that, uh, you know, there might be times where I've messed this up because I wasn't thinking. But uh, how the mixtape works is I just write down all of the songs in the order that I uh, encounter them in the text. Uh, and then it starts with uh, the first person to rate is the person who did not give the summary for that episode. And then it alternates. Hmm. So I don't know. Maybe uh, you're just a victim of the own, your own circumstances of your existence. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just a victim of Michael Lutz. Whatever. <sighs> That's right. You heard the dismissiveness, audience. That means yeah. it's real. <laughs> he would never be so dismissive if it weren't real. Oh, you're going to go back into your corral for so long for that. Once we stop oh, recording oh, the oh, Cameron no. corral that I keep you in. Oh, no. <laughs> And I won't give you any of the delicious food that I'm going to make for our next bonus episode. Yeah, tell us about it. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch, you can support us. We do not have ads uh, or anything like that. We are supported entirely by real people and word of mouth. Uh, you telling people about this show or, or boosting us and then also like supporting us on Patreon so we can continue to. Uh, do this show, set aside the time for it, and invest in, uh, in this case, a very interesting Stocks bonus and bonds. episode. Oh, wait. Sorry. What? Stocks and bonds. Stocks and yep. bonds. We're in investing in plastics, because what the people <laughs> want is uh, a reference to The Graduate in 2023. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, We're like going in for the deep cut. 2023. <laughs> uh no, we have bonus episodes uh, for five is $5. Uh, you can get all of our yep. bonus episodes that are typically about Stephen King films, but lately have not been about Stephen King films because of the strike. But that's now over. Hooray. Woo. We can go back to talking about movies. Uh, but we're actually going to do that later. Our next bonus episode, which we decided on at the time when we thought that this was going to be the 50% mark as a kind of celebratory maneuver. And that was our folly. Uh, we have gotten the Castle Rock cookbook, and we are each of us going to prepare some dishes from the Stephen King themed cookbook and review them, I guess. And then that, that seems yeah. like it'll be fun. I, I think our initial maneuver was going to be breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that what we looked over the precipice of that and found it distressing. That's a lot of meals. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to cook probably like two or three things each. So yeah, that's that's that uh, next bonus episode. Uh, thank you so much if you already support us, and I hope you enjoy uh, what we end up producing. Uh, if you also want to support us in other ways, the other thing that you can do is you can go to uh, your podcast platform of choice and leave a five-star review about us. But if you leave one on Apple Podcasts that is five stars and also funny, Cameron may read it on air as he's going to do for some select reviews now. That's right. Uh and because I forgot to look this up, I want to mention we're on TikTok now. Oh, that's right. Michael's let me make TikToks now. <laughs> yeah. Let you have the corral for the TikToks. 
I ref- I refuse to use a phone to do any of it. Mm-hmm. And so I use the PC app to upload stuff. And let uh-huh. me tell you, you don't have access to all the features of TikTok while you're using the PC app. I figured. So it's even funnier. <laughs> anyway, you can follow us on TikTok. That'd be good. Tick, uh, at range touch on TikTok. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let, let me, let me give it, we got a couple really, uh, we got a lot of good ones. So there's probably going to be some, um, run over here. Um, we got this, we got five stars from happy farts. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I do it for me. I've only read one King book in my life. Thanks to this podcast. I will still only ever read one King book in my life. <laughs> Um, there are some like just nice and kind reviews. Oh, uh, so you know, but not as funny. Um, someone says you're uh, uh, someone says you're that you're a darling little boy and you're doing a great job. Oh, that's wonderful. It's from a guy who hates anime. <laughs> All right, here, here, this is from Ranicula. Okay, okay. I went to see a Bob Dylan live with my dad, and we both ended up walking out before it was over. I have never walked out of this podcast. Five stars. <laughs> Thank you to everyone. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And so uh, next month, you can come back on the. This, there's often questions about this. When do we actually release this show? It's the second Monday of the month. So in 2024, you can come back here and we will ring in the new year several weeks after the beginning of the new year with our next book, 1999's. Have you ever made a list of, say, 80 or 90 books and then when it was too late realized that it contained an error? It happened to me. Because of that, when we were recording this episode, I actually said the wrong book. It doesn't matter what it was. What does matter is that it's actually going to be 1999's screenplay, Storm of the Century. And along with that, for the bonus episode, we will be watching the miniseries. Can I read one more uh, review? Sure thing. This is from Emery. I'm only going to read the first half of the review. Waiting with bated breath for fall slash winter 2024 when they have to do the final three Dark Tower books in a row and then King's nonfiction Red Sox book. We are going to have to do that. I know. I've never, I've aged 200 years. This is what my normal voice sounds like now. (laughs) I just sound like this all the time now because of that. (laughs) Looking at the schedule right now and that's, that is precisely on the dot. Fall winter of 2024, and that is what we will be doing. How much you trust my past self on this, knowing what you now know about the inherent contingencies of scheduling, I leave to your determination. Well, there we go. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I appreciate it. I, uh, as you can hear, I'm ill. I'll be better, though. At some point. Mm-hmm. Until next it's time. It's funny. I, I wonder if people can, like, match the waveforms in the many shows we've recorded over the past several days to determine when I got the most sick <laughs> versus the least sick. Cameron's sick a meter. That's right. 
because mm-hmm. they're coming out in different orders. You know what I mean? They'll be out at different times. That's true. You don't really. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know. They don't. They'll hear. They'll hear slightly different. Oh, 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 different noises and whatnot. Anyway, we'll be back in a month with Storm of the Century. Why? Oh, yeah, we're doing it for Steve. Steve.